This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, if you're one of these people that listens to the show only on the podcast or if you start listening at one, you're really missing out by not listening to my friend and colleague Dominic Carter. Not only does he do a great show in his own right, but he's kind enough to have me on in the uh, last few minutes. And uh, we spoke a little bit about space a few minutes ago. And he asked if uh, I had the opportunity to go to space, would you do it? My answer is an unequivocal, resounding yes. And it's funny. Uh, You think about it, and I'm actually asking people to retweet my Twitter play to Elon Musk, at Frank Morano, asking him to send me to space so I could be the first radio talk show host in space. But you think about it, I don't know what it's like to go to space, so why am I so eager to go? I really can't answer that, except to say that the thing that has fascinated me about space is the same thing that has fascinated viewers and readers of science fiction for decades and centuries about space. It's the same thing that fascinated ancient Greeks and ancient Romans when they looked up at the stars and wondered what's beyond there. And I'll tell you, nobody does a greater job analyzing what's happening in the stars, what's happening in space, and explaining it in a way that even Luddites and uh, laymen like me can understand than Steve Cates. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is one of my favorite guests. He's not only one of my favorite guests, but he's a regular on the Cats Roundtable as well, where he, who John Katsimatidis can have any guest in the world. And the fact that Steve is on that show so often tells you he knows the thing or two about a thing or two. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a tremendous amount of expertise in astronomy and space. And he's kind enough to stay up late occasionally and join us on this program. Steve, uh, good morning. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. And good morning, Frank. Good to be back on 77 WABC. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and a congratulations to you on the birth of your little baby boy. Thank you very much. Thank you. He is, uh, from what I'm told from his mother, he is currently <laughs> listening to us right now as he's being fed. So uh, bring Absolutely. your A game. This is his first time hearing you. Uh, actually, it's not because they replayed one of our interviews, uh, not last Saturday, but the, the previous weekend, and he was quite taken. He thought you had one of the better voices on, on the radio. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, There's a lot to get to. And let me begin with uh, Comet Leonard. Uh, uh, I'm always fascinated by comets that are passing the Earth, but particularly comets named Leonard because of my fondness for Leonard Nimoy. What do we know about Comet Leonard? Uh, When is it passing the Earth or has it passed the Earth? And how can people see it? Well, Frank, it's an interesting story here. Comets are of the debris left over from the creation of the solar system. They harbor out in an area way out beyond the dwarf planet Pluto. It's an area called the Kuiper Belt. And there's probably billions of these. What are they? They're made of rock. They're made of ice. And they're made of volatiles from the creation of the universe. So what happens every so often, the hand of gravity from the sun pulls one of these tiny objects from the icy regions way out in space. And now we have another comet. 
This one is called Comet Leonard. And the backstory is quite interesting. It's a good friend of mine at the University of Arizona. It's Greg Leonard who discovered this comet. It was the first comet discovered in 2021. He discovered it on January 3rd from the Catalina Observatory. It's called the Catalina Sky Survey up on top of Mount, the Catalina Mountains here near Tucson, Arizona. So he discovered it when it was about five astronomical units from the sun. An astronomical unit is the distance the Earth is from the sun, so almost out by Jupiter. And what's happening, Frank, is this object is slowly moving in toward the sun. But here's what's happened. Over the weekend, it actually passed us by 21 million miles. Wow, that's a safe distance. And it's an object that some people say, well, they've seen it in the sky, but you need binoculars. And here's, here's the scoop on this. It's actually going to get closest to the sun in early January, almost a year to the date, January 3rd of 2022. Closest to the sun, not closest, closest to the Closest to the sun, it. right. Okay. It's, already, it's already passed us, to answer your question. But what's happening is this is an opportunity for everybody listening to this radio signal. If you have clear skies on Friday evening, and if you have a clear sky to the southwest, and we'll try to, you know, get a little more summation of this to the end of the show, if it's okay by you, this is an opportunity where you might be able to see this interloper into the solar system, because if you don't see this one, for the last 80,000 years, it's been traveling in toward the sun. It's a lonely, cold journey, and it's going to literally whip around the sun and move quickly out of the solar system. You may have an opportunity Friday evening just below the area where the planet Venus is in the sky, and you can't miss that, Frank. It's the brightest object in the sky. So let's keep our fingers crossed for clear weather and a possibility to see this. But it's a very interesting thing because this is a comet that's gotten so much uh, press. I had an interview with this gentleman just about a week ago on my program, and he was just describing, and for all of our listeners tonight and this morning, it's just a fascinating story. They just don't go to the telescope and just take a quick picture. This takes a lot of time and skill, and I think this is his eighth discovery. So Comet Leonard, yes, there's a real person, Greg Leonard, and if you and I, let's say, discovered a comet and you were first, It'd be the Murano-Cates comet, and you can actually have three names associated with a comet. So, other than going to space, Frank, maybe we can look for comets. Well, um, well, that's a that's that's a, that is an interesting idea. I have been looking for some sort of claim to fame. But for people that do want to see <laughs> Comet Leonard on yes. Friday evening, is there a specific time where yes. a viewing of it is ideal? And uh, sure. will people be able to see it with the naked eye, or do they need binoculars or a telescope? No, but truth is always what I talk about here on these shows, and here it is. You need a pair of binoculars, you need a clear sky, and I'm saying this, it's probably a 50-50 chance, if at best, that you'll be able to see it. So why all the excitement? Well, here's really why it's exciting in the astronomy world. This comet on the 18th of December will pass, get a look at this, 2.6 million miles away from the planet Venus. And sadly, I guess we don't you know, have any life forms that we know about there. But can you imagine if that comet was coming 2.6 million miles past the Earth, that would be quite a sky spectacle because in the history of the Earth, Frank, we were grazed by a comet called Lexel's Comet back oh, a long time ago, many centuries ago. And that comet passed about 1.4 million miles away from the Earth. And those guys and gals in that era... They must have had one heck of a view of an object coming that close to the Earth, traveling about 150,000 miles an hour. In terms of comet spotting, you mentioned Greg Leonard discovering Comet mm -hmm. Leonard. How do, let's say you and I are uh, looking out for a comet and trying to discover one, how do we know if a comet that we've spotted has already been claimed by someone and observed by someone? How do yeah. we know if a comet that we're observing is new? 
One of the best questions I've ever gotten, Frank, and here it is. You and I could go out with a telescope. We could see this smudge in the sky. And what we do is report it to the Harvard College Observatory. There's like a clearinghouse there. Like the old days, they used the telegram. And that's how they would make these official things. But what happens is it takes time for some of the astronomers to actually run the orbital mechanics of that. That's the whole science of mathematics that's involved. And let's say they figure out and they come up with the conclusion that, no, this is not something that we think we see in orbit that's come by us before. And this is what happened here in Arizona back in 1995 when a bunch of, quote, amateur astronomers were out in the desert of Arizona. And they were looking at the southern part of the sky in the summer, the constellation Sagittarius. And this guy, the last name Bob, we all know that there was this famous comet called Hale Bob. This gentleman with the last name Bob was out just with some friends looking into the sky, and he saw this fuzzball. And that fuzzball happened to be one of the largest comets we've seen in some time. And he was lucky, but the answer is very simply this. It takes a little time to do the orbital calculations. Mm. And nowadays, it's probably very difficult. I don't want to be depressing here, but I want to always be honest. It's probably a little difficult for most people to discover a comet. Why? Because the telescopes now have these gigantic megapixel cameras, and they're scanning the skies with bigger priced objects that we can afford to be able to do it, but you never know. There's always that chance. All right. Uh, talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, if you have questions about astronomy, about space, about the stars, about anything related to anything that involves looking up, you can give us a call for the hour, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Speaking of things to uh, keep an eye out for, tell me about this Geminid meteor shower. What is, for starters, for people for the uninitiated, Initiated. What exactly is a meteor shower, and what's this Geminid meteor shower specifically? Well, the majority of meteor showers are coming from comets and the tails of comets. They spew out material. And if we can think back to our mindset, because radio is the theater of the mind, imagine when you watched or maybe saw the movie Armageddon. You see Bruce Willis on the surface of a rocky thing with gas jets pumping out, and there's material streaming off a comet. So as a comet, remember I mentioned about this thing's traveling, this Comet Leonard, like 150,000 miles an hour. It's getting sandblasted by the solar wind. So all this material is coming off the back end like a tailpipe of a vehicle. So these meteor showers, Frank, are all debris that are coming 99% from comets and comet orbits. But the Geminids have been one of the better meteor showers of the year. Unfortunately, you know, he's truth there. This year, I was getting reports earlier in the week of people seeing fireballs coming out of the northeast sky as bright as half an illuminated moon. But now the peak, as we're talking live right now, is actually supposed to be the early morning hours of the 14th. So here's how, if you have clear skies, wherever you're listening to the signal, if you go out and look up high into the northeast sky, this is where Gemini, the zodiac sign, the, the, where these meteors come from in the sky, this is the night that you should be able to see the best. And I've watched this shower when I lived in the New York area back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And honestly, this was the best meteor shower of the entire year, Frank. I would see on average wow. one of these bright ones every couple of minutes. So the Geminids are peaking. There's a moon out that's pretty bright, and that sets a little after 3 a.m. So the very best time, if you have clear skies and you're interested in bundling up in the cold weather, it may be worth it between 3 a.m. and sunrise that would be the answer. This particular shower, they all come from comets. But how about this? This particular meteor shower is actually thought to come from a rock comet asteroid. Now, what's that? It's an object that's probably an extinct comet, 
and it's spewing out so many rock-sized objects and smaller objects. And this one is called asteroid or comet 3200 Phaeton. And that's something that's amazing. Most, most of the meteors are coming from comets. But this one might come from some kind of an extinct comet, maybe more like a rock pile of asteroids. We're not sure. So that's uh, between 3 a.m. and sunrise which Correct. day? Today, Today. Yeah, early this morning, right, this okay, morning so of the people, 14th. If people are out now, if they're uh, wrapping up their night out or wrapping up their yes. work day, uh, that's mm-hmm. something they can p- p- possibly sure. even see on their way home, potentially. Peak was the morning of the 14th. Now it's the morning of the 15th. Still potential to see from fairly good amount of, per- of uh, Geminids, if indeed the shower does what it's supposed All to. All right. Okay. Uh, 800-848-9222. We are just 10 days away from Christmas, which if you're someone like me that uh, tends to put off all of your Christmas shopping until the last possible moment, even when there's a supply chain crisis, that is a pretty frightening thing. However, um, if we look at the story of the three wise men and the birth of the baby Jesus and something that I hope a lot of people will be paying attention to around Christmas time, a lot of it involves the star of Bethlehem. Now, what do we know historically about the star of Bethlehem that, uh, that guided the three wise men? It's interesting, Frank, from not only the biblical side, but also from the historical side. At least we think this is accurate. The three wise men obviously came from probably Persia or Iraq, and they headed, of course, in the direction because of some symbology in the sky. Now, remember, these weren't true astronomers. These were astrologers. What's the difference? They themselves may have had a good knowledge of the nighttime sky, but what we think, these are some of the summations of what it wasn't. Let me start off with what we think it wasn't. People were saying over the time of history that this was a visitation by Comet Halley. Halley's Comet passed the sun back around 11 BC, probably not the thing we're looking at. Would a comet have uh, given people an idea of something to come? Yes, comets were looked at as portents of doom. They were looked at bad things as omens. So it's probably not a comet that we're referring to. And categorically, if you go back into the sky... We're not sure of every single comet that's ever passed because it was all dependent on people viewing it. So theory one, not a comet. A supernova. We know so much about these exploding stars and the remnants. Astronomers have scoured the sky and looked for remnants that would maybe be the age of a, say, 2,000-year period. We don't see something like that. Now, these were astrologers. What we think it could be is alignment of stars and also the alignment of things with the sun the moon, and a couple of planets. I'll give you an example. On April 17th of 6 BC, now people say, well, how can the baby Jesus' birth be 6 BC? The calendar was changed. Look at the papacy, the Gregorian calendar. We had a whole bunch of lost time in there. April the 17th of 6 BC, there was an interesting alignment of the moon, Jupiter, and the planet Saturn in the constellation of Aries. And to the astrologers, Aries was something very special. So this might have been something, as astrologers, when they noticed the alignment of these planets and they noticed that they were in this particular area of the sky, their journey, which took them a long time. These objects didn't just appear overnight. They appeared for quite a while. Go back to another date, June the 17th of 2 BC. Another interesting series of events happened. Venus in the constellation Leo the Lion. Leo and an alignment with the planet Venus and a star called Regulus. If people look this up, Regulus means the king star or Rex. Maybe that was something that they knew or they looked at in the sky 
and said, this is a reason why we need to go and search for the birth of the Christ child. This was in the constellation of Leo. And then also in 6 BC, we find a conjunction that is a coming together, Frank, of planets Saturn and Mars in the very interesting constellation of Pisces. And what is the Christian symbology? Also, it involves the fish. So this may have been a series of alignments. It may have not been one singular event. But what's so fascinating, and I've studied this for so many years, it's a fascinating thing to just keep reading and studying this. There's no real general consensus, but we probably think without, you know, without a doubt that it wasn't a comet, it wasn't a supernova, but it was probably a combination of things in the sky that led astrologers to have some reason to move in a certain direction. Wow. Wow. Now, that's the whole mystical side of this. And beyond that, Frank... It's beyond my knowledge, you know, base of all, and I'm always honest, that this is interesting because it involves some sacred geometry. It involves the, the study of deep astrology, and there's really some mysticism in this, and it's fascinating to study. It certainly is. Now, I noticed you make the distinction, as everybody should, between astronomers and astrologers, astronomy more considered a science, astrology more considered sort of mysticism. But there's a lot of people, including a brother-in-law of mine, who put a lot of stock into astrology, given given the fact that a lot of people have been guided by the stars to make all sorts of decisions over the last few thousand years. Do you put any stock in astrology at all or is that something that uh, it just makes for a fun horoscope in the newspaper but not much beyond that well frank for me it goes this deep again think of it in terms in my mind like the magi the, the three wise men if indeed they did this journey and i think they did my respect for that is i like to learn because learning and unraveling these secrets it's like a puzzle and that's where i think this is interesting but it even goes deeper than this if you look and i think i've mentioned this on your show before that if we know from our education in astronomy when we're children, we learn that there's 12 signs of the zodiac. What we really weren't told is that there really are 13. And what's happening between December the 2nd and the 18th is that wherever the sun goes through, if you take the real estate of, let's say, you know, as everybody's listening, your property line. If I were to mark with a red line and go across all these different people's property and call that the path of the zodiac, we're saying that in this case, the 13th sign truly in astronomy, which kind of overlaps to astrology, is a, is a constellation in the nighttime sky, which is real. It's a large one. It's called Ophiuchus. Now, not to be funny, but I know in the 70s when people would say, hey, what's your sign? Or maybe even the 80s during the reign of disco, let's say, in the 70s. If you said you're Aquarius like me, and then if I said to you in a place, mine is Ophiuchus. You might think I'm suffering from some sort of a disease or something. <laughs> but the reality is, Ophiuchus, what is he? Or what is this, this constellation? It's a guy like Hercules who absolutely has a snake in his hand. And I'll be you know, fair and, and, and not get too graphic. He takes the snake and he's ripping the head from the body and pouring all the material inside you know, the guts, so to speak, into a cauldron. And he's spinning it and he's saying, here. You have arthritis, you have a pain, take this, because he was like an early, he was a witch doctor in so many ways. But the point is, what I'm saying is, there's so much overlap that that's why I say I have respect for astrology, because I like to study why people believe these things. But even today, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to put $100 down on something, you know, a sports bet or $1,000, just because I believe that the stars are aligned. But there's a lot of people out there that might think there's something to do with the retrogression of Mercury. Mm. 
And there happens to be things if you look in history. But the interesting thing is, so I'm saying in, in, in summation that the actual story of the 13th sign of the Zodiac is that we weren't told that. And why? Because it's triskaidekaphobic. Yeah, the fear of 13, who knows? But if, but seriously, folks, as you're listening, and Frank, maybe it's your birthday, I don't know. If you were born between December the 2nd and, say, the 18th, the real astronomical activity that's happening, wherever the sun lies, it's not in that astrological sign. It happens to lie in the true sign of Ophiuchus, which is a marker for where the sun is in the sky. It just goes through the, that area. So if it goes through a zodiac sign, it's technically, or a constellation, it's technically, if it's in that area of the ecliptic, it is a zodiac sign. Mm, very interesting. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, for the rest of the hour. If you have questions about anything related to the stars, space, astronomy, you name it, now's the time to ask. We're going to we'll take your calls next. I have a number of questions about what we saw this weekend in terms of Blue Origin making another trip to space, this time featuring the daughter of Alan Shepard and former New York giant Michael Strahan. We'll get into that, as well as a whole bunch of interesting things with Steve Steve Cates, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. You're hearing things. You're hearing things. On 77 WABC. Before Christmas, when all through the castle, my monsters were having a yuletide hassle. The tree was all trimmed in ghoulish things, like werewolf fangs and vampire wings. But they were up to no good. Didn't act like good monsters should. They found themselves a new prey. They planned to rob Santa's sleigh. They were making a list and checking it twice. Frankenstein wanted a shiny new train. Ah, yes, one of the great Christmas songs of all time, Monster's Holiday uh, by Barry, Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Keepers. For some reason, this song never achieved the same degree of popular acclaim that uh, Monster Mash did. I can't figure it out. You be the judge. Hey, uh, I am just thrilled that we have one of my favorite people on the line with us this hour, the one and only Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. Uh, Steve, you know, we were talking about yes. the movie Armageddon. We were talking about comets and sure. meteor showers last hour. I was going to ask you, you know, there the, the Armageddon deals with an asteroid coming towards the Earth to, uh, you know, to potentially destroy it. The movie Deep Impact, which came out the same year, dealt with a comet coming to the Earth and having similarly disastrous uh, complications. NASA is apparently taking this pretty seriously, and they're actually launching some sort of uh, an effort to see how they could divert the path of an asteroid that would be coming to the Earth. How much of a danger do you think this is? How much should people worry about an asteroid uh, hurtling towards the Earth to destroy civilization? Well, surprisingly, I don't want to ruin any potential career in being a guest on a show here, but the truth of the matter is I think the astronomers for now comfortably 
have enough of these orbital, of, of the near-Earth asteroids, about 2,250 of these objects. They have a fairly good idea of when and how these things will operate and come close or not come close. But the one that I have to be worried about, and here we go, I'll change it, is the object that we find out that comes behind from the sun. In other words, if we're looking out in the daylight sky, where telescopes are not useful because the blinding day, you know, the, the sunlight, an object that streaks by. Here's what we're hearing, and we're hearing a number of these, and there's a reason for it. What are we hearing? We're hearing more of these objects. How about this one? One that passed us, a small object the size of a refrigerator, that passed the Earth about 1,800 miles above the Earth. What? 1,800 miles? That's like the distance of New York to Denver, Colorado. And you hear the astronomy community announce that it was discovered hours after its closest approach. This is the stuff that we have to be careful about, large or small. And why are we he hearing at this at this particular time and not earlier? Well, more and more of these telescopes out there are able to detect fainter objects deeper out. You know, the, the magnitude number goes higher. And they're, they're you know, like, like having a giant camera that has this great you know, CMOS chip and it can megapixel. It can just capture light where you couldn't before. But the reality is, Something like this with this new project that they're sending out. The spacecraft is called DART. It's headed to the asteroid Dimorphos Didymorphos. It's headed to this Dimorphos asteroid and the Didymus asteroid. And they're actually going to slam the spacecraft into the smaller little binary asteroid to see if they can figure a way to deflect something like that. But, Frank, like I said before, of all the objects that we think are out there, we, fairly, we have a fairly good idea of the orbital ones that we know that they're not going to come. But we have to kind of still search the skies for that one, and all it takes, right, is one to come very close mm. to the Earth. And another great movie, by the way, was that movie called Greenland. And I remember watching this. It was about a comet that actually comes toward the Earth. And I forget the actor's name. He was in 300, uh, and I should know that name, and it's not coming to me right now. But he stars in that movie with his family. And not to spoil the whole movie for people, but it talks about a comet that would actually come toward the Earth. And that's the problematic thing. Asteroids are dangerous. We know what happened with dinosaur extinction. Mm. But comets, because like I said before with Leonard, they travel at such high speeds. They're like taking a 50 caliber bullet, you know, if people understand about, you know, ballistics, as compared to a 22, a little long rifle round. A 50 caliber has tremendous energy. Comets that would be headed toward the Earth are large. And some of these comets, there's one that's just been discovered it's called Bernadelli Bernstein. And this, according to the astronomers, is an object that may have a nucleus, a comet nucleus, maybe upwards of 30 or 40 or maybe even more miles in diameter. And luckily, at least the astronomers say that it's only going to go out to the orbit of Saturn. But let's hope they're right. Now, I didn't see that film, Greenland, but while we're recommending similar disaster mm -hmm. films, uh, the uh, the Sean Connery film from the late 70s, early 80s, Meteor, uh, oh, yeah. is also worth checking out. I think Natalie Wood might even be in that. I, I, stand I think so. Yeah. And, Frank, I'm such a fan of this. I can turn around and, well, it's stacked high somewhere in my sci-fi file, but I have a VHS <laughs> copy of that. So do I. So do I. <laughs> I don't even have a working VHS player right now, but I still have my tape of uh, Neither of do I, Frank. No, and you know where I'm going to go look for one? And, I, hey, I respectfully say, hey, this is a place to go. The local goodwill is a place to go, folks, because you'll find one. Just have to make sure you work, and it works when you plug it in before you buy it. Uh, fair enough. All right. Uh, Michael Strahan and the daughter of the first astronaut, Alan Shepard, went to space mm -hmm. on Saturday as part of Blue Origin. Yes. Here was a little of the reaction from these astronauts on Saturday upon their return back to Earth. 
So now, uh, obviously, you could hear there they were pretty excited. Anything different about this particular space flight as opposed to the previous ones with William Shatner and others? It seemed to operate pretty similar. But give us the lowdown here. What's the story? Well, Frank, this is surprising. And and this one kind of caught me by surprise. And I usually follow this and I try my best to follow this to report to all the listeners here. But this is one that kind of caught me by surprise. And I was surprised not because I didn't get, you know, on the stick on this one. But I, I didn't see the big PR on this one that I saw before. And Neither did I. I that's what, that's yeah. what I was curious about. Right. It's, it's a little unusual. And Michael, obviously, is the first of the journalists to go to space. And obviously, a reward to uh, Alan Shepard's daughter. I think that's beautiful. But it's so interesting that things are changing right now. And, and people need to hear the backstory of this. And it's not a complaint from me. It's just reporting what, you know, I'm digesting what I'm going to tell you here because it's something kind of different. You know, after many years of these private space firms building spacecraft, you need to go up to this 50-mile mark, which we call the Kármán line. And that's the magical mark where we say, if you go over it, you're an astronaut. And here in Phoenix, it's just like weird, because I think about this and I say, folks, you know where you live and you know where 50 miles away is. But in my mind, Frank, I'd say from here, from one side of the Valley of the Sun here, all the way out, say, by Buckeye, Arizona, and all the way out to Apache Junction, that's 70 miles. Now, wait a minute. That's 20 miles higher than you'd have to go to go to space. So what I'm saying is it's really not all that high. They set the mark. But now this is what's happening. The FAA has decided to end the program in which they award small gold wings called commercial space, commercial space astronaut wings, excuse me, to people who fly aboard these particular missions. They're going to go ahead and honor everybody, I believe, until the end of the year. So if you and I were going to go, Frank, and become astronauts. We better do it in the next 16 days. Right. But I got my credit card results back, (laughs) and I don't know if I have enough for that. I don't know about you. But here it is. This is what they're going to do. They're going to change this. Now, the FAA is in charge here, I guess. And what they're going to do is that they're going to say now in 2022, They're not going to give you the official FAA gold wings, okay? You're going to get listed on the FAA's online database as a person who was participating as a guest or a space tourist. But the space companies are smart enough to do this. If you paid that much money to go, they're going to come up with, and I'm sure it'll be beautiful, a separate pair of honorary wings that you'll be able to have and frame and keep on your wall and show your grandchildren. But it doesn't necessarily mean that is it is does that mean that you're not really an astronaut? So, See this is yeah, well, beginning next year then someone like Michael Strahan or Alan Shepard's daughter or me if I'm successful in my mission to broadcast from space, I won't be an astronaut, I'll be a space tourist. Probably so. And again, I don't want to say that this is absolute. This is what I'm reading and interpreting because it is claimed that those that went, like Bezos and you know, Shatner, they all sent their paperwork in or the companies that they you know, flew on sent the paperwork in and not to knock the FAA. But for some reason, it took a heck of a long time to even get a response on this. Mm. So here, here's what in my mind, this is what's happening here. We have so many people going up to space. 
And I think what they're trying to do is still be able to, you know, honor those that go into the NASA space program, let's say, where you go in for years to train. And I think the distinction is going to be where they're going to try to say, if you have a useful part of a safety function on the craft or some sort of a piloting function on the craft, that may be a reason to have you as an astronaut. But remember, and not that we're jealous, Frank, you know, we didn't get to go on this mission. Who knows? Maybe we will. But the reality is you're only going up for 10 or 11 minutes. And to many people, this is not my opinion, they're saying it's almost like going on an amusement park ride because you don't do anything but sit in the seat, they strap you in, and then the rest of it, it's automated and controlled by somebody else. So there's kind of a, I don't know, they're going to have to come up with some better definition of this. But hey, if I paid the money, and if you did, I think you and I would be clamoring to get those well, wins. It's those true. Wins. I mean, I, I do think there should be some sort of a distinction between someone sure. who's a, a scientist or a lifelong aviator, somebody like mm-hmm. John Glenn or Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin, as opposed to somebody that uh, doesn't have to do anything except uh, except ride ride on a rocket ship for, exactly. for 10 minutes. So I understand that. Now, um, there has been some criticism of these space flights. Uh, this weekend, for instance, a lot of people on social media where they're crit- critical of everything, they were quick to point out the uh, the uh, the greenhouse gas emissions, the carbon emissions that sure. are involved in a flight like this and the impact that that has on climate change. Uh, people taking shots at Strahan and Jeff Bezos saying one person, for instance, does anyone know what these launches are doing to the environment? I'm so happy that you got to go and experience the thrill of a lifetime, but how can we justify this while we're having F5 tornadoes in December, which is clearly due to climate change? Do the people criticizing these flights have any... uh, Is there a legitimate beef here? Well, I don't know enough about the climatological side of this, but but here's something that could be debatable. Again, people are saying that the F5 tornadoes, God bless and God rest the souls of those that died in these horrific tornadoes. I mean, if you look at the damage, I mean, it's like a a, a big space weapon came down and just fired something from space while well, it's in the atmosphere. But so many people are instantaneously saying this is climate change related and it has to be. And that's something we've had tornadoes. We've had tornadoes. We've had horrible tornadoes. But going back to what you're asking about, I don't know yet. I mean, I'm, I don't know, Frank. I mean, my opinion is I think they're being a little too hard on these space travelers right now because we see, look, if you took all the number of corporate jets that are flying around right. every single day, and if that's something that people are concerned about, as if you're saying if, or if people are saying, hey, that's that's one, in, you know, that, that's one factor that's you know definitely increasing climate change. The rockets that they're launching are not all that frequent when we talk about the space tourists. So I don't know really where I'm, I'm a little it's a little early for me to really jump in on that one. But I would, you know, as I do more research on this, you better answer that question in full. All right. Let's say hello to Pauline calling from Flushing. Pauline, you're on with Steve Cates. Hi, Dr. Sky and Frank. Good morning, Pauline. Um, Yes. Sunday, there was supposedly an alignment of like seven, I don't remember, were they planets and some of them were asteroids? Sure. Sure. uh, Do you know if it's still in alignment or can I still see it if it's like Sunday this was supposed to be? I I didn't have my binoculars. Pauline, I love the question. And here's here's the consolation. We were just talking with Frank and you've heard about this comet. And I'm always truth here that comets like that sometimes are pretty faint, but maybe you'll see it. But here's here's the consolation prize for everybody. If you go out and look into the southwest sky, 
this, this week particularly, even into next week, right around Christmas. What you're going to see is Venus is the lowest and brightest object right after sunset. If you follow the line up a little bit to the upper left of Venus, you're going to see a fainter star-like object, which is Saturn. And then if you continue up, you'll see the other bright one, which is easy to see with the naked eye, and that's Jupiter. So, Pauline, that's your alignment of planets that's in the sky, and it's really beautiful. And here in Arizona, when we were looking just a few days before the moon, like right after the moon was new, we saw the little crescent. We saw Venus, we saw Saturn, we saw Jupiter, and it looked like something out of like, uh, I don't know, like a dream. So, yeah, that's what you can see, and they're right in the southwest of sunset. Thank you, Pauline. We're going to continue with uh, Steve Cates uh, when we come back, 800-848-9222. Meantime, though, I do want to tell you a little bit about what you can do to whip inflation now. Now, unfortunately, the sad reality is for the economy as a whole, there's not very much you can do, but there is something you can do for your personal economy. If you have your money in a traditional retirement account, you are seeing it eaten away by inflation and other fees. Now, what can you do about it? Well, gold, gold, silver, and other precious metals. And that's where legacy precious metals comes in. Legacy can, uh, they're the experts. They can give you all sorts of advice based on your individual situation, and they can help you Get the most out of your retirement money. So if you have your money in an existing retirement account, think about rolling it in to a gold or a silver IRA and think about doing it with legacy precious metals. Gold should be a part of every wise investor's portfolio. It's certainly a part of mine. Give them a call. Write this number down. You can get some information for free. They're not going to try and horn you into committing to anything until you're ready. 866-932-0635. That's 866-932-0635. They also have a terrific website, LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. And you can request some information for free on that website, as I've done. And when they ask you where you heard about it, tell them you heard about it on this radio show. 77 WABC. Where the action is. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming. Well, Santa Claus is indeed coming to town and uh, emanates from the North Pole. A story that uh, I've been very interested in is that NASA has actually sent a rocket to study this mysterious area above the North Pole. And while we have Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, on with us for the hour, I can't allow the hour to go by without asking about this story. Steve, what exactly is happening in the area above the North Pole? Why is there such strange behavior in the air there? Well, that's the main mission. That's the main purpose of the C-Rex mission. It's a rocket that's like a sounding rocket. A lot of these were launched out here off of Wallops Island, Virginia, and they sent up all these different things called barium experiments. But in this particular case, Frank, 
what they're trying to understand is spacecraft that are actually going around the Earth seem to have some kind of yet unknown drag as they approach the pole. Now, this, this particular spacecraft, the C-REX-2 payload, is actually going to try to find out why there's this big dip in the atmosphere and also this clumping of material. So what we think we know from the physics world is that there's this large area, like almost like a tube, that goes, say, from the pole all the way up into the sky, maybe up into the sky about 250 miles high, and that is in low Earth orbit. So many theories abound on this, and, and one of them could be this, that all the magnetic field of the Earth is sucked in through the poles, the north and the south. Nobody understands why there's this clumping of atmosphere, or thicker, denser, I should say, atmosphere layers up around there. There shouldn't be. So the main purpose of this is when you do timing of spacecraft to go around the Earth, and you set them by all these atomic clocks, they're throwing that off. So this is an interesting thing. Nobody really understands why this is the case. It may have a lot to do with solar, you know, the, the different solar cycles when they increase and decrease. And just to let everybody know, common sense is that when the sun spews out this big energy, like a coronal mass ejection, this weakest area that the Earth sees is the polar regions. So there could be some kind of thing, obviously, connected to what's happening when this material is inducted into the upper atmosphere, causing some kind of proliferation or clumping up of atmospheric, uh, you know, the air in the, on the planet. It's amazing. It certainly is. All right. A lot of people have been patiently waiting to talk with you. I won't deprive them of that opportunity. If you want to jump on board, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let me say hello to Mark in Newark. Mark, you're on with Steve Cates. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning, Mark. Good morning, uh, I want to know when planets start to turn on themselves and what pushed them in the beginning to start to turn. You mean what, what causes them to turn and rotate? Yes. Okay. Well, the simplest explanation I can give you is planetary rotation is going to start when these planets are forming. And deep within a planet, let's take the Earth, that's the best example we can give because we're on it, is that deep within the Earth, there's this big area which is liquid molten metal or low molten material. And as it spins, Mark, this material in the planet is, is like a dynamo. In other words, it's like if you took inside of an electric motor a magnetic field that you can't see, but it forces the rest of the motor to start to spin. We have these things that start off when the Earth started billions of years ago. And that dynamo under the ground, we can't see it is what's causing the Earth to either spin slower or faster. And in some cases, like here on the Earth, we're noticing that there may be a couple of bubbles. I don't know if, if you heard of this, Frank. There may be a couple of bubbles of magma that are forcing the Earth to wobble a little bit. But this rotation mark is caused by the dynamos inside planets. And as faster they spin, obviously, the rate of, of rotation of a planet would continue. Is, is that since the beginning? Say again, sir. Is it since the beginning it has been like that turning? Absolutely. When the whole planetary object formed, and it's amazing, even in school I had a hard time figuring this out. When stuff was floating around in space and over billions of years all that stuff pressurized itself and formed into a planet, then once those nuclear or those fusion reactions started inside the core, that's when these things started to spin. But the Earth is very hot deep down and it's not solid all the way through. There's a magnetic dynamo under your feet, and it started when the, when the planet Thank formed. you, Mark. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Stan is in Rockland County. Hello there, Stan. Hi. Good morning, Dr. Cates. How are you? Good morning. Good, sir. How are you today? 
I'm great. Thanks. Uh, just uh, two things. First, uh, a comment. I, you know, I, I caught this on the tail end of uh, somebody else's comment with regards to climate change and rockets. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that rockets uh, have ever been had carbon based propellants. I think it's always been liquid oxygen, hydrogen peroxide, right. hydrogen based. So I don't Absolutely. believe that, uh, you know, and there's yeah. And so mm-hmm. there wouldn't be any remote possibility of climate change, that stuff all turns into water and oxygen. Yes. Uh, it yes. replenishes the atmosphere. Uh, unless you're, you're going to say that... Yes. Uh, unless you're oh. going to say that some of the byproducts possibly endanger the ozone, which I'm not familiar with that as a possibility. I'm going to go with your theory on this, and I'm serious, from science. I believe you're right. We're not using these hydrocarbons like we far, for, you know we, we have from automobiles and things like that. Yes, they're, they're chemicals that you don't want to mess with and be around, but I don't think the number of rocket launches at this point in time is of the great number. In other words, there's not enough of those rocket launches, I think we would both agree, Stan, which is causing I, this I, I cause agree. climate change. Right. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that people people see the vapor trails and they make them akin to the chemtrails. You see, you know, as the exhaust vapor is coming, be coming off of jets, and even that is condensation. You don't actually see the hydrocarbon. Anyway, I, I don't want to belabor the point, and thank you for agreeing with me. My question, no. I, I do have a question, <laughs> yes. though. Um, Go ahead, sir. My apologies for digressing. Thank you. Um, right. And I'm so happy that you're on, because now I finally get to ask this question. Um, <laughs> you know, a few years back, we had a, a movie, uh, Armageddon, with... Yes. Uh, I, uh, whatever the guy's name is. Anyway, Bruce Bruce popularized, thank you, Bruce Willis, popularized the fa- a possibility that we could destroy an asteroid um, with uh, with nuclear uh, armaments. And uh, yes. so for a while that took that took off. But then I read uh, there was a study that showed uh, mathematically it showed that asteroids, especially the larger ones, you know, since they all have their own gravitational fields, um, they demonstrated that, yes, you may be able to split it, but it would pull itself back together. And so then there was that. But then I read something else recently that seemed to, um, you know, uh, dispute that. So is there any factual reality, current factual reality of exactly what, we're, you know, what there would be if we tried to actually, you know, take out a, a, a space rock that was heading towards us? Stan, great question, and I'll answer it the best I can. And it's always interesting stuff here. I'm learning as I go along, too. I think yeah, the worst thing you could do. Forth. You know, there's no, yeah. Right. I mean, if I was president of the United States and we had an asteroid coming, I don't think I'd opt for the nuclear weapon because what I'm going to see happen, depending on the size of it or the, the closeness, what's going to happen is it's not going to vaporize it more than likely. It's going to shred it, and it's going to shred into like a shotgun blast. And I think you'll have more residual debris come down, and that would cause more damage to the planet. That's probably an unthinkable situation. But, you know, Stan, in conclusion, let's see what the little, the little DART mission is going to do when it slams a spacecraft into a small little tiny asteroid, not even that big, maybe 500 feet across. What they're trying to get is to see if they can deflect it gravitationally. And that's not just science fiction. So the answer will hopefully come in the next couple of years. And then let's both talk about it. Let's make a date here, Stan, to come back and talk about that by then. How's that? Wouldn't that be good? I, w- I would love to. Yes. And in fact, that was my follow-up to that, but you beat me to it, which is right. what also prompted me to call because I know that that, that dark mission is, is up and coming. And, uh, yeah. So, okay, fine. All right. Thank you, Stan. Merry Christmas. You Merry bet. Christmas to you, Stan. 800-848-9222. Ted is in Forest Hills. Hello there. Ted, you're on with Steve Cates. There's morning, only Ted. one rocket I give a damn now. It's the one causing, <laughs> carrying the Webb telescope. 
Ah, uh, yes. Sky, I've been waiting uh, like an hour. Uh, what does Dr. <laughs> Sky think well, that it will be successful? It's got so yes. many parts. I yes, I'm going to say I'm going to say this, Ted, that this is going to happen and it's going to be successful. Let me give everybody an idea on this. This is going to be launched, and I think this is pretty accurate, December the 22nd at 7.20 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a $10 billion spacecraft, but it's going on the French Ariane rocket. Why is it launching from there, people may wonder. Well, it's big enough. This thing is amazing. It's like taking a piece of paper and folding it. You, know, you could take a dollar bill and fold it into all these different shapes. The interesting thing is, why do I think it'll get to orbit? It's 14,000 pounds. It's a monster. But it needs to be launched, in my opinion, from an equatorial location, which is what that is, because the Earth's speed right at that area is about 1,670 kilometers per hour. In other words, you get closer to the equator, you get a faster rotation speed. So it needs to get all that oomph and energy up into space. And then it's got a 30-day journey to get to this Lagrange point called L2. That's about, get a load of this, about 930,000 miles from the Earth. And then it'll swing around in a six-month orbit, coming in about as close as the moon, distance-wise. I think it's going to work, and uh, I hope I'm invited back, Frank, if it doesn't. Oh, no doubt about it. No <laughs> doubt about it. There was a headline on uh, Drudge that this telescope could actually help us see the the past uh, somehow. Um, can you? Do you know anything about that? Can you, can no, you sure. update us on that? Well, sure. If the universe is thought to have started... And again, remember, folks, Frank, the universe didn't start with an explosion. It started with an expansion. And we don't, we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but many people think, and naively like everybody can think if they don't you know, read into this, the average person may think, well, the explosion took place and it happened around the Earth. No, it happened not around the Earth. It happened out there as an expansion. The benefit of this Webb Space Telescope is since it's got a larger, gigantic series of honeycomb mirrors, like 21 feet across, compared to like 90-some inches of the Hubble Space Telescope mirror, it can see deeper into space and closer into the time machine of when the universe was created. Maybe as early, and I'm just, I'm not guessing, but I'm not 100% sure, so it's somewhere in there, maybe as early as the point of maybe wow. a couple of hundred thousand years after the explode, or excuse me, after the expansion started. So you're going to get to see more with this thing and let's pray, because I know Ted was talking about this, that it's got to be able to be shielded from the heat. It's got like this incredible layer of, uh, you know, shielding, very thin stuff like cellophane, but it's not, like aluminum foil, but it's not, that it needs to shield it from the temperatures of the sun. So one side's maybe like 800 degrees. The other side has to be the coldness of space. So let's hope it works. But it's amazing, this whole technology the James Webb Telescope on its way. You know, I do want to get to a few more calls, and uh, uh, before we run out of time, though, the, the I, I have not even scratched the surface of subjects that I wanted to bring up with you today. So I want to tell sure. folks if they're enjoying our conversation, if they want to hear and read more from mm -hmm. Steve Cates, aka Doctor Sky, you can go to the website ktar.com. There's a great blog that he does. On there, there's some also a lot of great uh, clips. I go to it all the time and steal a lot of great talk topics from there. So that's ktar.com. Be sure to check that out. Uh, let me say hello to Judy on the east side. Judy, you're on with Steve Cates. Judy, good morning. Uh, yeah. uh, good morning. Do you have a comment on the possibility of radio wave 
harp installation manipulation on foul weather, such as causing tornadoes? Well, you know something, I w- and Judy, excuse me, I, I, this, I'm excited about this because you're bringing up a very interesting story here. I knew a gentleman, a friend of mine, who was the brother of the previous sen- senator from uh, Alaska, and he was studying HARP, and forgive me for not knowing his name right this second, but it was the same senator, it was the brother of the senator from Alaska, and he writes extensively about this subject of HARP and the geoengineering, and I don't know enough about this, but I can just place this you know, on, on a marker here for people to take a look at and yourself. I think there is something to do with this. I mean, there's somewhere maybe on the earth, I don't want to sound, you know, James Bondish here, like there's, you know, Spectre is out there to destroy the earth or Dr. Evil. But I think there is something to this. And when you manipulate the upper atmosphere, the Russians have done this for years, or at least they've tried to with these big radio arrays. They're either trying to heat the upper atmosphere or something out there and HARP was one of these experiments to excite the ionosphere of the Earth. And the gentleman's name, it was Senator Begich. So it's, I think his name is Mark Begich. Right, Mark Begich, yes. Right, and it's his brother. Forgive me for not you know, being fluent with his name. I had him on my shows for years. But, Judy, I think there's something to this that needs to be looked into. It's the whole geoengineering of the planet. And I don't think it's a joke. I think it needs to be further examined. All right, Judy, thank you very much. Uh, Steve, we are just about out of time. I very much appreciate you being so generous with your time. Thank and, you. Uh, for the callers that we didn't get to, uh, is there a way that you can – is there anywhere you direct them to bring their questions to? Well, I would suggest this. Go to my particular email, which is fluent from KTAR. And by the way, KTAR is the big news talker in Arizona, 92.3 FM. But simply just send me an email. It's just Dr. Sky, D-R-S-K-Y show at gmail.com. I'd be more than happy to entertain questions. And also, I want to mention real quick, if you'd like more information on this Comet Leonard uh, environment of what's happening and how to see it, the website is the Sky Live, theskylive.com. Frank, if you look at that and look up Comet Leonard, it has live positioning in space of where this is, live tracker. It's got the best information ever. It's a good friend of ours in Italy that runs Outstanding. this. And kudos Outstanding. To that. Steve, it's always a real treat to talk with you. Thank you. Merry Christmas, and look forward to talking to you soon. And Merry Christmas. We'll talk soon. Uh, we'll get to a whole lot more. Rudy Giuliani still to come, and uh, Chris Verga, author of World War II Long Island. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I tell you, I like the mail. Uh, the good old-fashioned snail mail. It's one of the big reasons that I'm still such a big defender of the United States Postal Service. The men and women of the Postal Service do a great job. I don't care what anyone says. I will defend the men and women of the Postal Service forever until the day I die. And uh, I have a lot of admiration for the great work they do. And a lot of the mail that you get on a regular basis, let's face it, I hate to say it, but it's junk mail. It's uh, advertisements. It's uh, bills, fewer and fewer bills these days because a lot of that is paid electronically. But this time of year, you actually do see a spike in legitimate correspondence. 
And that is in the form of Christmas or holiday cards. Just about every day, I will get one of a couple of things. Either I'll get Christmas cards in the mail, sometimes two, three, four, sometimes five in a day. And some are very basic. Some just a plain old regular Christmas card. Dear Frank and Rachel, uh, sometimes they'll include our son, uh, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, and then they sign their name. Other times it's a little more elaborate. Photos of the family, a nice message. It's a, a nice thing. I don't send Christmas cards. I have to say, I don't. My mom does, and she has a lengthy Christmas card list, and she'll send me things. Of, hey, what's Steve Isler's address these days? I don't know Steve Isler's address. How do I know, Mom? I mean, <laughs> sorry. Or, or, hey, why does uh, Vincent Gentile's Christmas card always come back to me every year? Do I have the wrong address for him? Mom, I, I don't know. Why, why do you keep sending it to that address if it keeps coming back to you? So I don't send Christmas cards um, mostly as a function of time. Uh, but I also – it becomes a um, – mostly for time reasons. I'm hoping that once our household gets established and once we get into a groove, maybe that will be something that my wife takes uh, takes ownership of. However, I do send postcards. Whenever I go somewhere, whether I'm going to Atlantic City, Cape May, Las Vegas, Aruba, Italy, I'm trying to think of other places that I've been, you name it, I will send postcards. I'll buy about 10, sometimes 20 postcards and I will send them to people that, uh, you know, that I'm thinking of. And a lot of times those people that I'll send postcards to will send them back to me. And an interesting thing, so that's my way of kind of trying to bring back the postcard. But an interesting thing has happened, especially over the last few years. It's getting harder and harder to find postcards. You go into store after store, you can't find postcards. So here's what I'm wondering. And I recognize that maybe there's been a, a little bit of a decline in Christmas cards over the years. But I don't think there's been that much of a decline in Christmas cards because if the mail that we're getting is any indication, people are still sending Christmas cards. And it's not solely the domain of older folks, if that's what they think is going on here. Younger people are still sending Christmas cards. And again, I don't know the stats. I'm going to try and look this up. But. A lot of young folks still send them. My my question is, see, look, in 2018, there were 1.3 billion Christmas cards. Um, In 2019, there was a 12% decline. So there is a little bit of a decline in Christmas cards. I don't have numbers for 2020 yet. But why are there still 1.2 billion Christmas cards being sent every year. And yet when I send a postcard, it's like I'm asking someone to point me to the nearest telegraph machine. Why have Christmas cards continued to flourish, whereas postcards have not? I am one of the few people still sending postcards. What's the story there? 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Do you send Christmas cards? Why or why not? For, for me, I tried it one year. I did it one year, 
And it became so stressful because I wanted to make sure I didn't forget anybody. I wanted to make sure I got Christmas cards out to people. I wanted to make sure I was reciprocating the Christmas cards that anybody was was um, was sending. And I would get frustrated with myself for not always being able to think of something clever to write. I was never happy with the Merry Christmas, you know, love Frank or anything like that. I wanted something a little bit more unique, a little bit more clever. So I just, I gave up out of frustration and I figured, and my mom is always very generous. She always says, is there anybody you want me to include on your Christmas, on our Christmas card list? I'll send them a Christmas card, but you know, you can't, if there's somebody that she doesn't even know, I can't really outsource that job to her. So I stopped sending Christmas cards. The one year I did it, I think was 2002, but I haven't done it since then. So do you send Christmas cards? 800-848-9222. What kind of Christmas cards do you like? I like the photo Christmas cards. I like to see how everybody's kids are growing. Uh, I like to see the, you know, the personalized photograph that they take around the Christmas tree or whatever else. And I, um, you know, I'd like that it's a little different than just a standard greeting card. And the other question I have really is why have Christmas cards continued to flourish while postcards have languished? What's the difference? I mean, it's both. They're both what you might consider an antiquated message a method of communications technology. Is it because Christmas cards are more festive? Well, I mean, vacationing is bigger business than ever. You know, uh, Jet Set Juliet with her Jet Set Juliet travel reports that she would do. You would see the interest in vacationing that's uh, all around. 800-848-9222. But I was reading one article in the Santa Fe, New Mexican. Christmas cards linger in a digital world like fruitcake in a gourmet restaurant. And I thought that was a pretty clever way to put it. And uh, the author of that particular article is Rick Ruggles. So I'll, gi- I'll give him credit on that one. 800-848-WABC. Do you send Christmas cards? What kind of Christmas cards do you like? And why do you think postcards have not enjoyed the same sort of durability that Christmas cards have? Karen is in Rockland County. Hello, Karen. Hello. Hi, Karen. Oh, Frank? I think so. <laughs> you know so. <laughs> now, just telling, I, I have a collection of uh, you know, old Christmas cards from the uh, late 1800s to the early 1900s. They had, you know, for all different holidays, but I, a lot of Christmas. And I don't know why it doesn't, uh, you know, I never really took after like the 1920s. Because they were, uh, they were very, you know, very... Uh, Karen, uh, do, do me a favor. Turn your radio off, if you would. Cal, can you turn the radio off a minute? Yeah, um, and, and just so I'm aware, did Ryan tell you to turn the radio off? No, but... No, he didn't. I, I could tell. Wait, 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 no... Uh, all right. Uh, okay. No, no, it's okay. No, no he's not. You, he, don't worry. Don't worry. You don't. You're not gonna. You know. You don't have to be afraid of him. But, um, <laughs> but Karen, in terms of uh, Christmas cards, it, was there prior to the twenties a lot more prevalence of Christmas com- card communication than since then? No, I'm not talking about cards. I'm talking about postcards. Oh, postcards. Okay. And yeah. You see, yeah. I mean, that was and a nice touch. Still, I mean, today, still, still not is, having any luck turning that radio off, I see, Karen. Can you turn that off, Kel? <laughs> is that better? All right, yes, thank you. So, uh, I'm sorry. So, you have a collection of postcards from the 1800s? Yep. 
Yeah, uh, the late eighteen uh, yeah, yeah, the mid eighteen hundreds up to about nineteen twenty. All right, well that's some collection. Uh, where did you acquire most of them? I imagine most of them were not sent to you. Oh po- <laughs> they were. <laughs> no yeah, you know, from antique shows, uh, uh card shows, trade shows. You know, because they used to have the old advertising cards, too, you know, that the stores used to hand out. No, I, I think that's very nice. So do you have a theory as to why postcards didn't continue to enjoy the same durability that, uh, say, Christmas cards have? I don't know, because to me it would be the same thing as texting, except, you know, you're writing instead of, you know, typing. It. Right, right, yeah. right, exactly. Well, Karen, I, I, hate tech. I don't like texting. It's not personal to me, you know? Yeah, I like text messaging um, as long as it's a short text message. If it's more than <laughs> 200 characters, then forget about it. It's got to be done. Oh, I was going to say, it's, it's three words. Yeah, well, no, I'll, I'll give them 200 characters. Hey, Karen, uh, <laughs> anything else you want to add? Uh, no, but uh, like I said, I mean, and a lot of times, you know, people send picture postcards, but they don't sign it. You know, they just send the picture and that's it. Do you send postcards yeah. still? Not not for the holidays. No, but well, no, not for the holidays. But let's say you go on vacation somewhere oh, to Pearl all, River. All the time. All you do? The, okay. In fact, I save them. <laughs> Even you- ones that I sent to my... Uh, Fiance, I, I I save all those cars. You know, it's like this way I know where I traveled. Oh, that's nice. So you're engaged now? Yeah. Is that is that Kel who you were speaking to just now? Yes. All right. Well, I mean, oh, yeah. given given <laughs> Kel's uh, inability to turn the radio off, you may want to reconsider, Karen. Thank you very much for the call. Um, you know, NDP Analytics wrote in a report last year that the increase in stamp prices. And electronic diversion, which is text messages and the kind of thing Karen was talking about there, they might have been responsible for the 19% decline in holiday cards. But uh, you're still seeing 1.2 billion of these cards sent, whereas you're not seeing that with postcards. Molly, our uh, communications analyst, is here with uh, her two cents on this subject. Hello, Molly. Well, I just want to say that I'm a recipient of postcards myself. Uh, so maybe you should check in with your, uh, youth correspondent before. Who sends you them? <laughs> uh, my, my boyfriend's brother sent oh. us a, a bunch over the summer while he was on a cross country van trip. Do, have I ever sent you one? No. Oh, sorry. Well, I figured we have to keep the uh, professional and personal aspects of our lives separate, you know, and, you know, barrier there. How, how. How much can go into a, a postcard? I, I, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to find out. But um, so, do you send postcards back to your boyfriend's brother and and others? Well, there's no address on a van, but I have. I have. <laughs> he lives in a van. Sometimes. Wow. Okay. Depending on depending on the season, I guess. He, so, do you send other people postcards? I have. Um, but do you I, make it a part of your routine? It's definitely not a part of my routine. But I I've sent postcards. I love receiving them. I don't go many places in in recent times, but do you uh, do you send holiday cards? No, no. Why do you think? Do you have a theory as to why holiday cards are still so prevalent, whereas postcards are on the ropes? I think holiday cards are. It's it's everything looks better in hindsight, right? Right, sure. <laughs> so you you look you look back at the past year and you get to be braggadocious about all the things your beautiful family is doing. 
I think it's more of an exercise of gratitude at at a time where people stop to reflect, whereas, you know, maybe the the gratitude doesn't come in from a vacation. You're more caught up in the moment. You're more willing to if you if you're going to share that moment, you're probably going to share it in a quick way in a way you can blast it out to a bunch of people okay. rather right. than. Well, yeah. there, there's the the Molly theory. Molly, thank you yeah, very of much. Course. Keep me on your postcard list, I guess. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Joe on Long Island. Ryan claims that your radio is off. Is that true, Joe? Yeah, it is. How you been? And uh, you're definitely missed. Thank God you're back. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's funny. A lot of people, crazy. I think, uh, <laughs> a lot of people might have preferred Curtis. <laughs> nah, definitely not. All right. Well, what, what, what's on your mind, Joe? Voting for him. But, oh, uh, no, no. Yeah, no. Christmas cards are great. And, uh, you know, it makes you think about the person. And uh, you, you definitely got to start this year sending out some Christmas cards. And God bless you and your family and the, uh, your newborn. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So you do do you you do Christmas cards? Do you also do postcards? I uh, now with the social media, no one. That's why no one does the postcards no more. Everyone, every two minutes, you're putting something on Facebook. Well, yeah, you're right, Joe. You're a hundred percent right. But see, you still send out Christmas cards. Why do you do the Christmas cards but not the postcards? I'm trying to wrap my head around the dichotomy. I'm going to send you a Christmas card, and then it's like uh, he's thinking about me now, you know? Right, but but I, I would be know. thinking about you for the postcard as well, Joe. If, I don't know. It's right. easier, I guess, that once a year. Who knows? See, and, and thanks for the call, Joe, and thanks for your nice wishes, and thanks. Merry Take Christmas care, to you. Appreciate it. There's something going on here, right? Oh, see, Joe, he is a textbook example of what we're talking about. He sends Christmas cards. And he's not just sending Christmas cards. He's a Christmas card evangelist. He was trying to get me to send Christmas cards. That's how devoted he is to the Christmas card cause. Yet, he doesn't send postcards. I ask why. His reaction, well, what do you need to do that for? You could just post it on social media. Well, you could post your Christmas card on social media. So there is a dichotomy in people's brains between holiday or Christmas cards and postcards. And what I have yet to drill down upon with that lady who refused to turn her radio off in Rockland County, with Joe, who regrets voting for Curtis, and even with Molly, is why? Why the dichotomy? Why do holiday cards continue to flourish and postcards do not? 800-848-WABC. Gregory in the Boogie Down Bronx. Give me some answers, Gregory. Frank, uh, well, uh, all I can tell you is I travel for a living, and uh, I do some mentoring with people in the prison system. And every time I would go somewhere, I would go out of my way, whether it be into an airport or a train, gift shop, to find a local postcard of that city and to just send a little note and to make sure it was postmarked from that city with the postmark stamp and in and, and the postmark and send it to them. And it was like gold to them. I mean, postmark, uh, postcards are not dead. Uh, well, I still send them, so I know they're not dead, but they are on the ropes. They're on the ropes, but... 
you still can seek them out. I mean, you go into any airport gift shop and you'll find, no matter how small the city it is, you'll find, even if you're in Columbus, Ohio, you'll find a postcard that you can mail out. You just kind of have to seek them out, I guess. You know, I love what you do in terms of uh, sending mail to prisoners. You know, I have a lot of friends that have been in prison and a lot of friends that are in prison right now. And I got to tell you, uh, it is such a lonely experience being in prison. I don't think people have an appreciation for this. And people are so grateful to get mail that um, I, uh, you know, I know some prisoners that would actually just try to subscribe to as many mail order catalogs as possible just so they get mail. And I used to do uh, Christmas shout outs to the MDC. Maybe we'll bring it back this year because um, uh, so it's so great that you do that. And I hope more people take a cue from you. Thanks, Greg. 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, friends. I've been sending out Christmas cards on my own since I was in college because my parents used to send out cards and sign my name when they sent cards to people. Um, and I, the ones that are, are important to me, I hang on to. I got Christmas cards from England. I got cards from uh, an actor from the World Shakespeare Company. I got, because I babysat for his kids when he was performing in New York. Oh, that's nice. And Yeah, yeah. And Bob Wolf, the sportscaster, he was one of my instructors in college. Now, and I, and, so you send Christmas cards, although I don't believe I've received one, Carol. Oh, you're going to. Uh, I, I should hope so. I, I certainly have uh, dealt with my fair share of Carol calls. I would hope that I get a Christmas card. <laughs> do you also send Do you also send postcards? Um, well, I haven't traveled in a while, so no, I, I haven't sent postcards. Okay, all right. But so yeah. the reason you don't send postcards is because you don't travel. It's not because you're not postcard-minded. No, I, I, if I go overseas or I travel somewhere, I would definitely send postcards. Okay. All right, Cal. Thank you very much for the call. Did you get What was your best birthday gift? Get any good birthday gifts this week? Oh, yeah. I got a whole box of different types of candy and gifts and everything, and I got cards, of course. I always get birthday cards. You know, while I have you on the phone, Carol, since you know you're in a gift-minded mode uh, right now, I'm, my wife and I were trying to think of what I should get my dad for Christmas. I, I told her, you know, I just usually renew a newspaper subscription for him, and he seems pretty happy with that. But she wants to get him something else. What do you think is a good gift for you know a guy, like a, a guy? Well, what does, what kind of things uh, does your dad like? You know, he has a variety of interests. Like he likes Broadway, he likes uh, golf, he likes uh, to go out to dinner, he likes uh, he likes booze, he likes cigars. But um, you know, he's the kind of guy. He's sort of like me. Whereas if if he wanted something related to any of those things, he would just buy it himself. You know, he wouldn't sit around mm. pining for uh, a new set of golf clubs or something. <laughs> he plays golf. He does. He's. I think he plays a little less these days because of his back. But yeah, he is a golfer. Yeah, I uh, maybe you should get him um like something uh, a gift certificate from a restaurant. 
Okay, well, that's that's an idea, Carol. Thank you. I know I put her on the spot there. Maybe that was unfair. But uh, I'm not a gift card guy. I refuse. I hate gift cards. I'll, you know, we'll save that for, uh, maybe we'll save that for tomorrow. Why I dislike gift cards. I I find gift cards to be maybe the worst gift ever. Maybe, I think that they're horrible. Horrible. But that's just me. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Raul in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Raul. Hey, Frank. Nice to hear you. Uh, congratulations on the baby. Thank and, you. Uh, Curtis Lever, oh, my God. I think I was going to drive off a bridge. Uh, <laughs> well, let me, let me, let me, wait. so just so, just so people know. Just so people know that um, that uh, that that Curtis did have some fans. Let me read you this comment um, from from the Facebook group. This woman wrote, "Frank, your shows are very boring. You're either discussing UFOs or the sky. Bring back Curtis. There are a world of topics, and you constantly repeat the same tiresome ones. Please change your format. Listening to your show is worse than watching grass grow or paint dry. So there are some people out there." That did prefer Curtis. I think there's room for both, you know? No, 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 no. Thank God you're back. Thank uh, you. I worked the overnight. You know, I'm an Uber driver in the city. I I, I need you. You know, I, I from from Rita all the way up to Frank, we're good. All Let's right, go well I'll Curtis. take it. I'll take it. Thank you. Listen, on the on the on the cards, um yeah, I think you know, I send uh, Christmas cards and stuff like that. But I just realized I was sending them to liberals, so I'm going to stop doing that. On on the no, on the I don't think you should stop. Yeah, no, I got it. We have to do that. I'm in New York City. New York City's going to hell. Listen, um, on the postcards, I like to send the postcards when I go to Puerto Rico. I send them to myself. They're time stamped, and it's it's nice to see that when you get back. But but why are you and, sending a postcard to yourself? To remind me of a vacation I okay. just had. Well, that's to... that's nice. I mean, but you could also, I guess, keep a journal or a scrapbook, right? Nah, I never was into that. No, okay. All right. Well, different strokes for different folks. Uh, now, do you send Christmas cards to yourself as well? No, I do not. But the Christmas cards might be more popular than the cards because you can put stuff in there, you know? You can, you know, it's, a, it's an envelope. Right. Well, that's true. That's true. But the, on the other hand, as Neil just emailed me, the postage on the postcards is less expensive. So you could you can send a postcard for a less of a price than the Christmas card. Raul, thanks for the thanks for the call there. Sending himself postcards. There you go. Hey, hey I don't don't knock it. Uh, I've never tried it, but maybe it's nice. But, uh, you know, I guess you could also send yourself a holiday card for the same reason. Remind yourself of the holiday. Hey, we just had such a great ham here. This is me in the future, right? Patrick in South Carolina. Hello, Patrick. Morning, Frank. Thanks for taking my call. No, it's it's my pleasure. I I have a friend uh, named Pat that's, uh, I think he's living in North Carolina now, but uh, it's something you guys have in common. Yeah. Hey, um, a postcard is more kind of like, you know, um, a thing you send when you're on a vacation and it comes with a different postmark than your domicile, you know, zip code. And a Christmas card, that's what some people like to say, you know, best wishes for the holidays. But uh, there's there's a big difference between a postcard and and a Christmas card. A postcard is like, you know, when you're on vacation and Christmas card is what you do seasonally, you know? 
yeah, I get that. I get that. So um, that makes sense. I- I'm just curious. I would think sort of the same mentality goes into both. But I appreciate the call, Patrick. Uh, appreciate you calling from the Palmetto State, South Carolina. That is the Palmetto State, right? Yes. Okay. Now, uh, by the way, speaking of interesting places, I want you to listen to our next guest, Christopher Verga. He wrote a book uh, that I have been reading It's all about Long Island during World War II. I have to be honest. I had no idea Long Island was such an interesting place. There are spies out there. There were Nazis out there. There was all sorts of major manufacturing hubs out there. And this is the same fellow. Some of you might remember my interview with Chris Verga when he did the book about Cold War Long Island, all about this espionage ring. And there were Soviet spies on Long Island. And there were Nazi scientists that the American government hired after World War II to work on Long Island. If you could believe that. So we're going to get into that in a big way with Christopher Vergen next. Meantime, if you are someone that has had a way too many fruitcakes this holiday season and you're finding yourself a little bit constipated, I've got some good news for you. The news is the following three words. Life change tea. You've heard me talk about it. And you know, it's funny, if you've still heard these ads and still not purchased Life Change Tea, I almost want to be like the guy in the drug commercial, the anti-drug commercial, who who cracks the, the egg on the frying pan and said, all right, last time, you still don't understand what's happening. This is your stomach. This is your stomach without Life Change Tea. Okay? And then and any questions? I don't know what you're waiting for. Do you not want more energy? Do you not want to get all the junk that you're putting in your body on a regular basis out of your system? The preservatives, the heavy metal, the garbage that's in your system? Get it out and get it out with a gentle daily cleanse, life change tea at getthetea.com. It is a terrific product. I drink this stuff. It's wonderful. Stress can wreak havoc on your digestive system, and Life Change Tea is here to help. Go to the website, getthetea.com. It's the only place to order it. And if you use my promo code when you order, Frank, getthetea.com, promo code Frank, you will get to enjoy free shipping anywhere in these United States. Getthetea.com, promo code Frank. Non-GMO, all natural. You're going to like this. You're going to thank me. Getthetea.com, promo code Frank. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Who's got a beard that's long and white? Who's got a beard that's long and white? Who comes around on a special night? Who's got a special night? Special night, beard that's white. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I am a great lover of history, and one of the things that's been very frustrating to me for the last few decades is, quite frankly, there's very little instruction about local history in schools. You really don't learn. You learn American history, maybe some global history. You learn very little about what happened in your backyard. So frequently... I am amazed and just dumbfounded 
at the incredible historical significance of events that happened right here in our listening area. And surprisingly to me and perhaps to you, one of the areas that was incredibly rich with history was Long Island. And one of the people that I really enjoyed speaking with recently was Christopher Verga. We spoke with him, uh, I guess, maybe a month or so ago about his book, Cold War Long Island. Lo and behold, Long Island has had just as robust and just as rich a history during World War II as it did during the Cold War. And I'm very, very pleased to be joined once again by Christopher Verga, author of the book, World War II Long Island. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Chris, we have a lot of listeners out on Long Island that might be familiar with the traffic on the LIE, the uh, best spots to get pizza, or uh, how long it takes to uh, uh, to wait in line for Newsday uh, on a on a Sunday. They may not have a full appreciation for what Long Island looked like prior to World War II. Paint the picture for us. Before World War II, what did Long Island look like, and how does that compare to what it looks like today? Okay, so uh, Long Island before World War II and currently, uh, it's unrecognizable. Before World War II, Long Island was a rural appendage of New York City. So it was pretty much sporadic farms. And then you had the downtown communities of the South Shore, which were like resort communities. So uh, picture the Hamptons, except the Hamptons was more like in Bayshore, Freeport. You know, the South Shore communities of Long Island that were by the bay. So they were very, it was very sporadic population. There was a fraction of the population in both counties that we have today. And uh, it, was, it was very undeveloped, very rural. And, uh, you know, you did have a button aviation sector, um, as we spoke prior. You know, Republic was there and Grumman's was there, Republic Aviation and Grumman's Aviation. But once again, it was limited in production. World War II is going to be the uh, catalyst that's going to make these... Uh, manufacturing bohemians. They're going to become giants of industry in aviation. So, once again, definitely no strip malls, no miles and mazes of houses. Um, you know, parts of Long Island, uh, neighbors, uh, they didn't refer to addresses. They went by last names. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, to Smith's Red- residence, you know, this letter's going to the Smith's residence in uh, so-and-so town. You know, it's definitely different culture, different image, unrecognizable. Hmm. Now, the population such as it did exist back then, you write that there was a tremendous sentiment towards isolationism and not wanting to get involved in another European conflict following World War One. Talk a little bit about that. How did the the sentiment of isolationism on Long Island compare to what popular sentiment was in the rest of the country, the rest of the state? Okay, so let me unpack this a little bit. Long Island, uh, being a very rural, um, you know, very rural pastoral area uh, prior to World War II, also had a, another side. Uh, it was it was very very isolationist, as I wrote in the book, and it was very very strongly anti-immigrant, mainly Italian immigrants. Um, they were very very hostile to a lot of Italian immigrants coming in. And uh, Long Island, in general, had uh, an estimated population, one in seven people, that were Klan members prior to World War II. And wait, there were one in, wait, part- well, just repeat that. One in seven Long Islanders were members of the Ku Klux Klan prior to World War II? 
Yeah, this is an estimate, once again, and these records are verified with the Suffolk County Historical Archives and also the uh, Queens Central Library on Linden Boulevard has the other half of this uh, archive. So, yeah, you know, this is just based off membership rolls of the Klan that are documented still and also based on the, uh, you know, the rallies they used to have. And they were strongly anti-Catholic. Um, so anything that was breaking down in isolation bubble, they were strongly against. Like Long Island was a, was an extreme of most areas, and uh, their main target was uh, Italian Catholics and uh, other immigrant groups coming in. So that's where Long Island generally was. And in addition to that, you know, you have uh, quite a few people that lost their lives in, in World War One. So. You know, they're still licking the wounds of World War One as well. So a lot of people didn't really want to get involved because they still had the memories of World War One on their mind. And then you also had uh, Patient Zero, they assumed, came from Camp Upton with the uh, Spanish influenza, the flu of uh, 1918. So, uh, you know, and anything that had to do with globalization, immigration, they were strongly, strongly against. There was strong opposition. You write that Long Island in the run-up to World War II was fighting sort of a two-front war with Germany. You not only had Nazi sympathizers, including some of the people that you describe, I'll point out, by the way, for the record, that any family that I had, uh, any family that I have that lives on Long Island, they all moved there post-World War II, lest anyone think there were any Morano members of the Ku Klux Klan. But you write that in addition to the Nazi sympathizers, there was also an issue with spy rings. Talk about that. What did we see in terms of spy rings on Long Island? Okay, so uh, let me unpack everything there for a second. So once again, uh, the KKK would not have Italians in it. That's number one. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm Sicilian, so yeah, me and uh, me and your relatives were targets uh, for them. Let's put it that way. Uh, but yeah, the uh, now this is another interesting factor of Long Island, which make it which made it even more interesting. The German American wound, which is I'm just going to simplify it if you don't mind. Uh, it's the uh, pretty much the birth of the American Nazi Party. Uh, they had their uh, one of their main headquarters and camps in Long Island called Camp Siegfried. And once again, it was allowed to function because, you know, they, they shared a lot of the same ideas with some of the uh, extreme uh, extreme groups that were on Long Island at the time, such as the KKK. Uh, they were strongly no, anti Chris, let, let me interrupt here. The German Bund, what's the time frame of that? Did that exist only on Long Island in the run-up to the war, or did that continue during World War II itself? Uh, they, they were about the thirties. I'm going to go late thirties. They were really on Long Island in full force. Um, but once again, the uh, German-American Bund was dismantled right on the eve of World War II. They were gone before World War II. Um, but, you know, the effects were still there. You still had, uh, you know, you st they still kind of promoted the same values. You know, the German-American boom, when World War II broke out, they, t they said have many half the Germans that were American-born go over to Germany and fight for the Nazis. So, you know, they left their impact even uh, during World War II, the German-American boom. And they also uh, established an uh, advanced network of spies. So if you had a German-American moon membership, uh, a German diplomat or a Nazi diplomat would be in these uh, rallies at the Camp Siegfried, which is in Yapank, Long Island, where they have the German nationalist rallies. 
And, uh, well, you know, at these rallies, they'll identify if you work for aviation. And if you work for aviation, they would say, well, how about, would you like to do some work for the fatherland of Germany and earn money on the side? And that's how you got into becoming a Nazi spy. Wow. Uh, we're talking with Christopher Verga. He's the author of the book World War II Long Island, a really interesting book. So how did things change once the war began, uh, Chris? Did we see more of a, a patriotic fervor on Long Island, particularly after Pearl Harbor? Huge. It was a huge patriotic fervor. You cover in the book a little bit about some of the FBI detainees uh, during World War II. What kind of folks, particularly on Long Island, was the FBI detaining during World War II and in the run-up to World War II? The uh, one of the uh, one of like the uh, FBI busts was something called the Benson House. The Benson House was a uh, shortwave radio station, and it was also a safe house for Nazi spies. And uh, in this house, you know, you had all these spies that are recruited at the German boomed rallies. So they would go there, share their information on a shortwave radio, be transmitted to Hamburg, Germany. And uh, some of the stuff that came out of this, that went to this house to be transmitted to Hamburg, Germany, was actually all the industry secrets, secrets, sorry, for Sperry's. Sperry's is a um, uh, aviation um, plant which which makes uh, bomb sites and autopilot. So pretty much right before we got into the war, the Nazi Luftwaffe, Nazi Air Force, they had our technology for autopilot and for bomb sites because of this, you know, this like uh, this espionage leak. And uh, when the FBI got wind of this, they actually caught the Benson House, all the people operating the Benson House, and used it to broadcast false information to Nazi Germany. They actually had a cutoff there and used it to broadcast false information. So that's how the FBI uh, uh, finagled the Benson House. Uh, You show some in the book, some photographs of members of the German Bund going on trial in Bayshore. How did those those trials turn out, and uh, did all those trials take place prior to the war? Yes, they all took prior to the war. They all took place prior to the war. And uh, those trials in particular, for those images I have in the book, those are because they wanted to get the membership roles of the German-American Bund. And not only get the membership roles, but they also wanted to know what politicians that they uh, donated to what campaigns. Um, Because the German-American Bund was a big fundraising arm that actually supported uh, politicians that wanted to stay neutral in uh, World War II. So, you know, that's what that trial was over. And uh, the ones, the orchestrators of the German-American Bund, wind up getting deported. Mainly, most of them wind up getting deported and uh, brought up on charges. So uh, Fritz Kuhn was uh, the most known. He was the leader of the German-American Bund and also one of the founders. He was later on deported to uh, Germany Hmm. after World War II. Yeah. The the last time we spoke, we talked a little bit about Nazi scientists that were recruited by the American government to work on biological weapons for the U.S. government. We also spoke a little bit about Soviet spies that existed post-World War II on Long Island. What do we know about um, 
spies that existed, if at all, for the Nazis on Long Island during the war itself. Were they successful in deporting most of those uh, spies or were there spy rings that actually continued during the war? Well, the spy rings were broken up, but the damage was done. Mm -hmm. Um, There might have been spy rings during the war, but they had a very, very, very small impact once again. Um, nothing like they were before the war with, uh, you know, the spy ring that gave from Sperry's that gave our, our secrets to the uh, German Air Force. That that was big. You know, they were using our autopilot and our bomb sites against us when we went to war with Germany. So that was actually the worst. Uh, but, yeah, you had minor spy rings that uh, went under the radar, but there was nothing significant like before the war on uh, intelligence leaks. And in terms of Nazi scientists working for the U.S. government, when did that start? Was there any sort of a, a gap between the end of the war and the beginning of uh, our government employing Nazi scientists, or uh, did it happen right away? Uh, there was a little bit of a gap, not too long. It was after the war, obviously. Um, you know, probably like 1946, they started bringing a lot of them in. Uh, one we did discuss prior was Eric Traub. Uh Traub, he's like the founder of Plum Island, uh, the German warfare facility. He worked mm-hmm. on the Heimlich Kula, uh for uh, biological warfare. Uh, before he got a job working in Nazi Germany, uh, the Heimlich Himmler, he actually was part of the German-American boon in Yapank. And uh, he was an American graduate of the Rockefeller Institute for Biology. So uh, he was one of the uh, German-American Boone members that uh, kind of uh, committed treason against us. And we welcomed him back and gave him a job on uh, Plum wow. Island. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, that's the most significant one to cover. Uh, he has, uh, you know, Eric Traub got Long Island ties about five times over. So, uh, you know, that's the big one. We have heard a great deal over the years about Japanese Americans being sent to internment camps during World War II. What many people may not know about is that there were also Americans who were of Italian descent and German descent that ended up in internment camp uh, in internment camps. The German and Italian population of Long Island during World War II itself, how were they treated? Well, that's interesting you brought that up. Um, I'm going to speak more on the Italian, because I did write extensively about that. And I'll be honest with you, I'm a little subjective. Uh, If you notice in the book, I have a picture of my grandfather uh, going off to D-Day in there. Uh, I saw. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, The Italian immigrants, uh, they were not, once again, they were not treated well in Long Island to begin with. They were kind of new to Long Island, and uh, there was a lot of animosity with them, especially with the rise of the Klan. So... You know, the Italian patriotism and the mobilization of the Italian community uh, in Long Island actually was noted. you got to understand, just under a million people that served in World War II on the American side had some type of Italian origin. So how the Italian community mobilized in World War II definitely uh, took away any question of their loyalty to the country. Um, But, you know, there was still personal biases. And yes, some Italians did get put in these intern camps as well. Um, Notably, um, the ones that did get put in the intern camps, they were only in uh, Camp, um, uh, was it Camp Upton, uh, with some of the Japanese as well. But once again, they were all transferred out of state to a Maryland facility um, when uh, they started taking in POWs during the war, prisoners of war. And they were looking for facilities to house them. 
Finally, you spend a little bit of time talking about what wartime manufacturing was like on Long Island. Tell us about that. What was actually being made on Long Island? Everything. <laughs> Everything. Long Island was the arsenal of democracy. There's a famous book that says Detroit, the arsenal of democracy. I, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to criticize that book because Long Island outproduced any area on uh, aviation and on planes. So the P-47 Thunderbolt, the most, one of the most mass-produced planes during any time of war, was produced in Long Island in the Farmingdale facility, employing about 29,000 to 50,000 people, depending on the year. And uh, the P-47 Thunderbolt, you know, that was the plane flown in the European theater. That was the plane that the most famous flying ace of one of the most one of the most famous flying aces of World War II flew, Gabri Gabrinsky. Um, hmm. And that's the plane that actually made us win in the uh, in the European theater of war. And uh, Republic made 9,000 out of the 15 here uh, in Farmingdale. In addition to that, uh, we also have the uh, the Hellcat. The Hellcat was a plane that was made in uh, Robbins and Bethpage. That plane is so significant because it had the folding wings that landed on the aircraft carriers, so it was able to uh, conduct bombing raids and also do escort missions of the Avenger Bomber, which is another plane that was made on Long Island. Uh, about 9,000 uh, were made in total, the Avenger, and uh, a good portion of them were made in Bethpage as well. And uh, once again, those are the planes that won in the Pacific theater of war. So, you know, and, and it's not just planes we produced, too. We also produced, uh, you know, the buzz bomb. The buzz bomb is very significant uh, in the European conflicts, uh, of the European theater, sorry about that, of war as well. And that was made in Republic, uh, Republic Aviation over there in Farmingdale. So, oh, you know, th those are the most significant things that made us win the war. So. Uh, well, it's a fascinating book. I want to encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, the book is called World War II Long Island. The author is Christopher Verga. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time this morning. Let's do it again soon. Definitely. And thank you again. Thank you again. And congratulations on the new addition to your family. Oh, thanks very much. I appreciate it. I'll uh, look forward to introducing you to Young Carmine sometime soon. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Christopher Verga, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight. With Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Santa works all day in his workshop, making a lot of games and toys. Then one day he hops in his sleigh to bring them to the girls and boys. Santa's just as nice as he could be. There's just one stupid thing that worries me. If it doesn't snow on Christmas, the great Joe Pesci singing If It Doesn't Snow This Christmas. It's certainly an irony that Joe Pesci has a Christmas song and he himself is in one of the best known, two of the best known Christmas films of all time, 
Home Alone and Home Alone 2, uh, my wife, a big fan of both, whenever I uh, go to an event around the Christmas season, maybe a Christmas party that she may not want to go to or something of that nature, she will watch the film Home Alone and order a cheese pizza. And uh, that is, she did that last week, I believe. Hey, speaking of pizza, I really have to take issue with our associate producer, Molly, who had the gumption to order two pizza pies for our illustrious staff here. And uh, she she prodded me to have a slice of this pizza, even though she knows I am trying to fight the battle of the bulge here. I am trying to keep my waistline from expanding so that it's not at the level of uh, the rings around Saturn. But that's why I am glad I have a guy like Mitch Suss in my life. Mitch Suss is the proprietor of an entity called the Skinny Center. And I heard about the Skinny Center from Greg Kelly. Greg Kelly has been transformed. He has gone from a pudgy-looking radio host to a svelte-looking Marine veteran. And I am going to do the same thing. After the holidays, I am turning to Mitch Suss and the Skinny Center to get back into fighting shape. Now, if you want to join Greg Kelly and me on this journey, the Skinny Center is right up your alley. Give them a call, 914-703-4811, or go to theskinnycenter.com. That's theskinnycenter.com. They pinpoint abnormalities in your body chemistry and look at the reasons that we overeat, uh, reasons that we crave sugar, and the reasons that we're always hungry. I don't know that they can do much about people like Molly that are always trying to shovel pizza down your throat. But at the very least, they can give you some supplements that will keep those cravings at bay. All right, 800-848-9222. Next hour, Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor. He's going to be here. Mayor-elect Eric Adams has made a selection for the new police commissioner. I'm going to ask Rudy Giuliani what he thinks of that commissioner, what that of that pick. And I'm going to ask Mayor Giuliani what advice... He would give Eric Adams upon taking office. You know, I uh, one of the greatest documentaries that I saw on PBS was about John Lindsay. It was called Fun City Revisited. It's very good. And Rudy Giuliani is in the in the uh, documentary as Ed Koch is and a number of other people. And Giuliani talks about how even though John Lindsay had supported Giuliani's opponent, Giuliani asked to meet with John Lindsay. And he talks about this great advice that John Lindsay had gave him, even though Lindsay didn't support Giuliani. And he talked about how much he valued that advice. So I'm going to do the same thing with Giuliani. I know Giuliani didn't support Eric Adams, but I'm going to ask Giuliani what advice he would give the incoming mayor. 800-848-WABC. I want to squeeze in a couple of quick calls if we can. In the meantime, let me say hello to Joe in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. I'm going to cover a whole bunch of things really quick. I do still send Christmas cards, uh, even though I notice it's been all, a lot of people haven't sent back a lot this year. I do the postcard thing. Uh, I like doing it. It's nice to send when you're away on vacation. I have an idea. 
see your dad for a gift, uh, go to the mall, get one of those shirts or mugs with a picture of your son on it. It says Grandpa. I'm telling you, Frank. You know, that, that's a good mug. idea. I was thinking because, you know, he's got the same name as my son. I was thinking maybe I should try to track down a baby picture of him and juxtapose it with a baby picture of my son. But I like your idea. I think he'll probably like the mug more. And also, I've been, I've been, this is a plug for Life Change uh, Tea. I started it uh, last Friday and working seven days a week. In a matter of three days, I felt totally different. Uh, I have so much energy, and you're right. It is a gentle cleanse. It works awesome. And uh, Joe from Ron Cogdemy uses it, and I love it. Wonderful. I'm going to include that in the commercials going forward with your, with your permission. Oh, you can? If yeah, you we're going to have them use promo code Joe for free shipping. <laughs> hey, have a good night, Frank. Thanks again. Joe, thank you. 800-848-9222. Ron is in Michigan. Ron, only got about a minute left here, but it's all yours. Frank, you know, those Boone meetings in Chicago, uh, Jack Ruby used to go to the uh, Boone Well, this meetings. is Long Island. I know that. But in Chicago, they had Boone meetings, too. In Boone meetings in Chicago, uh, uh uh, Jack Ruby used to go there and beat the shit out of... Uh, uh, and uh, again, again, you can't use profanity on the air, Ron, so thank you. Um, 800-848-WABC. That was it. I'm glad I spent my last minute of the hour on Ron from Michigan. You know, it, I figure people listening all over the country when we're a show that we have listeners, but you got to come on. I don't understand why it's so difficult for people to avoid using profanity in a 40-second phone call. Do you know when I use profanity? Never! Never! Uh, I would, you know, I've known my wife, I think, about six years. I don't think, unless I'm quoting a film or something, I don't think she's heard me use profanity once. And I don't say that because I'm some great uh, paragon of virtue. I'm certainly not. Heaven knows. I have just about every vice that you can have. But there are so many wonderful words in the English language. Why do you have to resort to gutter language? I don't understand it. All right. Uh, coming up next, the Peloton is something that is very interesting to a lot of people. If things don't work out for me at the Skinny Center, maybe I'll try this Peloton. And Mayor Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, he's going to join me. We'll talk about the incoming mayor. We'll talk about Andrew Cuomo's book. And uh, all this uh, Mark Meadows news, quite a bit to cover. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, there are some instances where, when I read the paper or I look at society and I just bury my head in my hands and I say, How stupid are the people that share this planet with me? And I don't sit here pretending to be some great intellect. I'm certainly not. If I've done anything in my life, it's convinced people that I'm smarter than I am. You would actually be amazed at how unintelligent I am. I mean, really, I think because I can speak in complete sentences, 
80% of the time, people are somehow fooled into thinking I'm much brighter than I am. I'm really not. Not a bright guy. I am of average intelligence at best. And yet I am consistently disappointed at the number of people that showcase below average intelligence. And the latest <laughs> – the latest chapter in this has to do with Peloton. Do you know what Peloton is? Okay. Well, if you're like me and you're in need of a trip to the skinny center, chances are you may not know what a Peloton is. Peloton is a stationary bike, but it's it's really neat. It's really cool. I mean they're always in, in the midst of controversy, which is what I love about them. Two years ago, they were part of a very controversial Christmas ad where uh, a guy got a Peloton bike for his wife. And people said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe they're using this as an ad, a guy getting an exercise bike for his wife. Imagine that. That was where we were two years ago. That's what people had to complain about two years ago. That's where we were as a country and a society. But that's neither here nor there. So it's it's a really neat bike. It's super expensive. And as I understand it, I've never ridden a Peloton, but as I understand it, you ride the bike and you uh, have a video in front of you and you could take certain classes on the Peloton. You can uh, take classes with an instructor. I think, and again, I haven't used this, so I'll defer to your expertise if you've ever used a Peloton. I think you can have different uh, backgrounds. I think you can bike in the woods, bike up a mountain. It's sort of like a, a virtual reality bike, but sort of a it, – it's really neat. People love it, the people that have it. So anyway – Peloton is a high-end exercise equipment maker. It was one of the hottest stocks early on in the pandemic because everyone's stuck home. Everyone's doing nothing but eating all day. They're stuck home. They can't interact with people. So what are you going to do? You're going to try and get into shape and do things like ride this Peloton bike. This stock price soared, soared. It gained five times its value in 2020, I'm no expert in the capital markets, but I think when a company gains five times its value in one year, I think that's pretty good. I can't say with certitude, but I think it's pretty good. But its struggles to hold on to those gains have been just that, a struggle. Listen to this. Its shares are down more than 70% this year. Seventy percent in one year for a company that was going up, 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 up and up. Now, I am sure there are a variety of reasons for this. People going back to work, they can go back to the gym. There's less of a need for Peloton. But <laughs> the latest setback to the stock price came from the new Sex and the City film. Now, I, I've seen Sex and the City, but I'm not really a Sex and the City fan. I know, I think I can name all the characters, and I don't know if I know which actress plays all the characters, but I'm familiar with the premise, and I know that people love this show. My mom loved this show. I think my wife loved this show. It was a very popular show and continues to be a very popular show, and uh, it's been very popular in the movies. So now... They debut this new film on HBO. It's called And Just Like That. That's the new Sex and the City film, And Just Like That. Debuts 
last week, and I'm not going to give you any spoilers in case you haven't seen it yet, but the film features a character dying after stepping off his Peloton bike. The character has a heart attack, from what I understand. And a jokey ad that revived the the character has attracted a lot of attention. But since the film showed this guy dying after riding his Peloton, the stock price has plummeted. So a Peloton spokesperson told the New York Times that within... 48 hours of this film debuting, the stock price slid. According to an analyst who covers capital markets, um, Peloton was not paid for the bike's appearance on this show, but they signed off on it. They gave permission for it, and they didn't find out until later how the bike would be used. So this... First of all, I am blown away by this. For starters, this is fiction. This is fiction. A person didn't really die after using this Peloton bike. I mean, maybe there is a person that died, but it's not actually this person. This actor is still alive wherever he is. So all I'm thinking is what idiotic consumer is making the decision to not purchase a Peloton because they see a character die in the Sex and the City movie. If a character gets hit by a bus, what are you going to do? Stop walking? If a character dies in a car accident, are you going to stop driving? This is the most ridiculous thing in the world. But even more so, if you're a stockholder, do you really say, oh my goodness, they killed off so-and-so in the Sex and the City movie? I got to sell that stock price. To me, it's a bizarre reaction. And yet it's all too real. This film caused the price of the Peloton stock to plummet. Now, on the one hand, I can't feel too bad for the company Peloton because they thought they were going to benefit from all sorts of free publicity in this film. You know they thought this was going to be the best free ad they ever had. And then they were hoisted by their own pelotard. They found that, uh, okay, all of a sudden, maybe this isn't the kind of publicity we want. But I find this ridiculous. I find this as ridiculous as, you remember during the coronavirus, uh, when 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 it first started, and sales of Corona beer plummeted. And all I can think is, who is going to stop buying Corona beer because they think it gives you the coronavirus? It's ridiculous. I cannot understand what goes on in society. I cannot understand why someone would be planning to purchase a Peloton bike and then see a fictional portrayal, completely fictional, of a fictional character dying after using the Peloton, and then all of a sudden, boom, I'm not going to buy it, and I'm going to sell the stock. It makes no sense to me. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. 
uh, this company's stock price plunged 11% in the five days following the, de- the debut of this film. And you, you see the company... Peloton tried to get all sorts of experts to testify, well, no, you know, that character lived an extravagant life. He drank, he smoked cigars, he ate big steaks, and he was at serious risk. And and all I'm thinking of, can you imagine you're a cardiologist and you're now called upon to analyze the medical history of a fictional character? I mean, where are we? Where are we that this is where we are? Um, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let this be a lesson to you, though. If you're a company and you think you're going to benefit from being in uh, a movie, you better be careful. You don't know how they're going to use it. It's funny. uh, Curtis and I were in a television show one time for six or seven seconds. We were on the radio together. And uh, we was it was a, a great show, actually, except for the last season. The last season was weak. But it was a great show called Damages. And I think we were in the first episode of season three or season two. I don't remember. I think it was season three. And they didn't tell us how our scene was going to be used. We just recorded this audio and sent it to them. And we, did, we had no expectation. We didn't care. And it turned out it, – it turned out that – I don't want to give too much away, but uh, it turned out that a character – listening to the two of us, experienced a car crash. And he, so what? Does that mean all of a sudden radio stations don't want to hire us because they're afraid people are going to listen to us and crash their cars? I find this to be utterly and completely ridiculous. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. One, two, three, four, five. Five open lines. And uh, if you want to jump on board, please do so. Uh, your call screener, the person, the, the telephone talent coordinator who will be determining whether or not you have what it takes to get on the air will be Ryan Modica. And um, I did discover Ryan Modica's building ID in the kitchen And my decision to give it back to him will largely be based on whether or not you have your radio on when I go to you on the air. So if you want this young man to uh, get his ID back, then you should keep your radio off. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Bob in Long Beach. Hello, Bob. Yeah, Frank. I wanted to tell you something. Uh, You know, uh, in World War II, or right before it, when the Germans entered, there was a submarine that came up off the coast of Amagasset, right off the coast. And they left five spies in rubber boats paddled ashore. But a guy who was like a sailor on beach patrol, I think it was during World War II, the very beginning, spotted them. They escaped, but they caught them the next day. And Franklin Roosevelt, in 30 days, shot them, all of them, except the guy who ratted them out, and he got life imprisonment, and uh, that's what they did to spies. I didn't go for his domestic powers, but he was an excellent war fighter. Well, uh, Bob, I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. I do want to tell you that uh, maybe you lost a lot of money on Peloton, 
and maybe you're worried about your long-term financial prospects. If so, then you really need to think about gold, silver, and precious metals, specifically with the company Legacy Precious Metals. And the inflation crisis that we're experiencing is all too real. Inflation is at higher numbers than it has been in 30 years. We are going to see the most expensive Christmas meals in the history of our country. The money is worth very, very little, and it is going down, down, down like a um, – like some pick a metaphor of something that goes down. There is something you could do about it, gold and silver. If you have your money – in an existing retirement account, you should really think about rolling it into a gold or a silver IRA. And if you do that, you should do it with Legacy Precious Metals. These guys are experts. They're the company that you can trust because they give you unbiased information based on your individual situation. Contact Legacy Precious Metals today. Call 866-932-0635. That's 866 866- Nine three two zero six three five, or visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. Let me say hello to Rosemary in Westchester. Hello, Rosemary. Hi, Frank. Thank you. Um, I think about the Pendleton bike. It was just like, not to use a bad pun, the final nail in the coffin of the company, kind of. Just like the time, like you said, um, people started getting out, going for walks. They go back to the gym, and then they see this, and stupid people take things real literally and real seriously. And I think also I was telling your screener, I think, I don't watch a lot of TV, I saw like a competing company with almost, almost the same name. Maybe they're trying that. I think it's called Echelon. I don't know. Pitbull was in it. Oh, really? It was about a ver- Yeah, I think so. Don't take, I think I'm 90% sure. And the, the woman's riding the bike and he's talking. He's sponsoring it and he's talking about, you know, go, go, go. And a little bit about the cologne, if I may. I'll try to be brief. About um, what? The cologne? The Corona beer. Oh, Corona beer, yes. I think ahead. it's. It's not that they thought really, really stupid that they're going to get the virus. I think just uttering the name, it was right in the middle of the high mortality rates. And it was just a bad thing to think about, you know, to see that in front of you, the name. I get it. I get it. Makes sense, Rosemary. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Let's appreciate you listening. It's funny. Just yesterday, I think this was yesterday. Peloton, they've been trying to do damage control on this, right? So they've released all these ads that are making light of this. And just yesterday, they followed up with an ad that showed um, one of the characters uh, cozying up to a woman on a couch in a New York City penthouse in heaven asking if they should take another ride. So the camera pans out to Peloton bikes in the background. And the share price freefall presumably gets halted. And then Ryan Reynolds, the actor, Ryan Reynolds, slides in with a faux medical voiceover and says, I should have pulled the audio, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. And just like that, the world is reminded regular cycling stimulates and improves your heart, lungs and circulation, reducing your risk of cardiovascular diseases. Cycling strengthens your heart muscles, lower resting pulse and reduces Blood fat levels. He's alive. That's what. So Peloton's doing damage control mode. I got an email here. Somebody asking 
Can Peloton sue? Answer, no. Again, I'm not a lawyer, so you can always find a lawyer to file a lawsuit on something. But the answer is no. They do not have a leg to stand on because they gave their permission. And I guarantee you whatever agreement they signed said they have no control over how their image uh, and how their product gets used in the film. They should have insisted on reasonable creative control, although we saw how well that worked out for Brett the Hitman Hart at his last Survivor Series. Trisha is in Turnbull, Connecticut. Hello. Hi, it's uh, Trumbull, not not Turnbull, but um, congratulations on your baby. Um, Thank you. On the... uh, I agree with you. People make uh, investment decisions for stupid reasons. Uh, It was totally irrational exuberance for Peloton to uh, go up five times in value in one year, um, similar to maybe what happened to Amazon back decades ago before it was making any profit. But um, I can explain this simply. Let's just say it started out in 2020 at the price of $20 a share and ended up the year at 100, which would be a five times increase. And then you you said it's lost 70%, I think, this year. Well, down from 100, it would be at 30, which would still be at 50% gain from where it started in uh, 2020, which would still be overall a good gain. Uh, That's true. That's a a great point, Tricia. Well done. And I'm sorry for calling your town Turnbull. You know what it is? The senator, the, uh, there's a character in The Godfather Part Two that's Turnbull. So even though I saw, and I can't blame Ryan for this one, although I'd like to, and, um, and trust me, there's nobody more disappointed than I am right now that all the callers have their radio off and I have to give him his ID back. But I saw that it said Trumbull, but in my brain, because I've seen The Godfather Part Two so many times, I just see the senator saying, talk to Turnbull. It's just in my brain. By the way, I want to thank another listener, Tom. I said that this Sex and the City reboot was a film. I thought it was a film. It's not. It's a new TV series, 10 episodes. So I regret the error, and I hope you accept my contraction. Hey, speaking of contractions or retractions, uh, Rudy Giuliani is going to join me next. The House has just voted to hold Mark Meadows in contempt. We're going to ask Mayor Giuliani his thoughts on that. And yesterday... There was an AP investigation that found that there were 475 instances of fraudulent votes in the election. That's not really enough to alter the outcome. I'm going to ask Mayor Giuliani if that has altered his view of his advocacy on behalf of the President Trump uh, post-election legal team. We'll talk about it next. This is The Other Side of Midnight Straight Ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. Well, in just a couple of weeks, New York City is getting a new mayor. And uh, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, left, right, somewhere in between, there are not a lot of people that seem too sorry to be saying goodbye to Mayor Bill de Blasio. But what shall we expect from Mayor-elect Eric Adams Uh, when it comes to policing, when it comes to education? A lot of people seem pretty optimistic at this point. 
point. What's it like to take over the every administration of city government after someone else has been running things for eight years? Well, somebody who knows exactly what that's like is America's mayor, someone who transformed New York City in the 1990s. I'm also very proud to call him a colleague here at WABC. You can hear him every day at 3 p.m. and every Sunday morning where he does a terrific job with Dr. Maria Ryan. Very pleased to welcome America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, not at all, Frank. Love it. First, Mr. Mayor, I think this is the first time we've spoken since uh, you're a grandparent. Uh, I'll tell you, <laughs> my, I have to congratulate you, but I also have to tell you, my uh, my wife gave birth to our first son on Thanksgiving, and the first person I heard from was your son, Andrew, congratulating me. So uh, I'll give you the congratulations right back at you. Well, thank you very much. Congratulations to you. That's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I can see the difference in my son just the last week and a half. It's unbelievable how happy he is. Believe me, I can empathize. So, uh, Eric Adams taking over as uh, mayor. You have talked about some of the advice you got from previous mayors of New York City. If Eric Adams were to call you and ask you for your advice on any subject, what would you tell him? What's the most important thing for him to keep in mind at this point? Well, there's no doubt the most important thing for him to keep in mind is he's got to get control of the quality of life, the crime uh, issue that... uh, is frightening the heck out of New Yorkers, frightening people away from New York and doing great damage to us. Uh, And he has the opportunity to do it. He ran that way. Uh, Whatever else he does or he doesn't do to turn around the damage that de Blasio does, if he does that one thing, it would be a really big improvement. I would think he's got to uh, reestablish something like the anti-crime unit, he can call it something different, but people, people uh, detectives and police officers who are skilled in taking guns out of the community. And he's going to have to reestablish a constitutional, lawful version of stop, question, and frisk. He, know, he knows there is a constitutional version of it. Now, you know, he, he has a problem I didn't have. He's a member of a, a political party whose policies are causing most of the crime in this country. That's the Democrat Party. So, I mean, that's not an exaggeration. I mean, there are 12 cities right now who have uh, had their biggest year for homicide ever in their history. Every single one of them is a Democrat city. Chicago is not one of them. Chicago is not having a record year, but it just happens to lead the country in homicide. And that's been a Democrat city for 50 years. And the other two that are on their way to joining them, I think, are Milwaukee and Minneapolis, and they're both Democrat cities. Do you have? He's going to have to walk away from some some of their policies, and I don't know. I hope he can do it. Well, do you have any sense of optimism that uh, the fact that he was able to win the primary after uh, basically on policing, uh, schools, uh, calling out AOC and the squad sounds a lot more like a typical Republican than a typical Democrat? Do you think that maybe even Democratic primary voters in some of these cities, including New York, may be fed up with what they're seeing in the dozen cities? Oh, I think they are. And that's why they voted for him. And I do think, I mean, I have no doubt he's going to do a better job than de Blasio, but that's not even praise. (laughs) Uh, uh, I mean, the the reality is when you said uh, very few people are sad to see him go, Frank, I've made an offer on my radio show for someone to come on and defend de Blasio 
And I said, I'll give you two or three minutes. I'll not even interrupt you. And and when you get off, I I won't even contradict you. And I've never never had anyone come on except one guy who came on as a joke. And uh, he he talked about how de Blasio is very proud of the records he set. Uh, He's the mayor uh, that's had the biggest increase in homicide ever in the history of the city, 50%, biggest increase in shootings. Very proud of his record, he said. So when it uh, comes to de Blasio, what do you think this run for governor is all about? And I know your son is also running for governor, but do you think that the mayor de Blasio is delusional enough to think that he could win? Or is he doing this for publicity? Is he doing it for fundraising purposes? Or is there something else here? I think it's the first one, Frank. I think he was delusional enough to think he could run for president. I'm not even sure he got 1%. Yeah. I've never heard of someone. I remember there was a poll, a very last poll, where he didn't even register a percent. Well, all, he did, all he accomplished running for president, the rest of the country found out in about four months what we knew, that he was the worst mayor in our history. Uh, there, but there is something delusional about the man. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't really see reality. He's also extraordinarily lazy, so I don't know. I mean, he'll make one campaign appearance a day, and then well, he goes somewhere and he does something. I'm not sure I know what it is. Is that the best possible opponent for Andrew Giuliani? He won't be the opponent. I mean, there's no way. I mean, the Democrats have a lot of problems, but they're not stupid enough to vote for him. <laughs> I mean, look, look what they did in the – I mean, he, I'm not even sure he'll get 4 or 5% of the vote in the Democratic primary. Hoka will wipe him out. Or uh, or even even uh, Williams. We're talking with uh, New York, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Hear him every afternoon at 3 p.m. What do you think of uh, Eric Adams' appointments thus far? There seems to be a lot of optimism. Well, yeah, he's, I think he's made good good appointments. I think Banks was a good appointment. Uh, he looks like uh, he's uh, he's talking to uh, Swazi. That would be an excellent appointment. Uh, the guy's a real professional. I mean, they're all way too liberal from the way I look at things, but that's not the way I would judge it. I would judge it on their being professional. Now, he's expected I mean, to name uh, this uh, woman, Keechan Sewell, as the police commissioner today. She's from Nassau County. I believe she's the chief of detectives out there. Yeah, I don't know her. I, I really don't know her to comment on if she would be good or not be good or uh, uh, I, 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 I don't I don't know anything about it. Well, in but, terms of picking someone from outside the NYPD, you've done both. You've picked someone from within the ranks of the NYPD, like Bernie Carrick, and then you've picked somebody from outside the NYPD, like Howard Safer. Do you think that picking an outsider adds a different perspective, maybe gives a fresh set of eyes? Yeah. Or yeah. would Adams have been better off picking somebody from within the organization? Well, it depends on what he wants to do. If he really wants to change it, then he's got to pick somebody from outside because somebody from inside is just too uh, set in the ways of the department. And the department is very powerful. I mean, it's a it has its own its own politics, its own uh, way of doing things. And no matter how strong a mayor is, they'll resist. So if he's intent on really changing it, then somebody from the outside is a better is a better choice. Uh, but what it really needs right now, even before change, it needs to be bolstered up. It needs a, it needs a boost in morale. I mean, if I were him, I would on uh, you get sworn in on the first. Uh, right after I got sworn in, I'd go visit four or five precincts, mm. and I'd go talk to them and say, "Hey, you, uh, let's let's just make it real simple. You're back in a situation where the mayor likes and respects you again." 
uh, I can't do everything you want, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I was one of you. I know what a difficult job you have. And uh, I'm, I sure as heck am not going to use you as whipping boys and girls. So a whole new thing is happening here. I support the police. I will give you the benefit of the doubt. God forbid you do something wrong. You're going to have to be punished, but I'm not going to assume you did. And go do your job and do it effectively, and you're going to do really well with me. It sounds like overall, though, with some of the appointments we're hearing about, it sounds like you're pretty optimistic about what we might see for the next four years. Well, you might as well be optimistic. I mean, there's no reason not to be. I mean, uh, I, I do think you don't want to get overly optimistic. I mean, he is going to be a Democrat, so you have things like, he supports this ridiculous idea of non-citizens voting, uh, but but uh, that's not going to happen. It's, uh, that's going to be declared unconstitutional. The, the state, I mean, this is a, it's, re- it's almost totally ignorant. It, it probably is an example of how p- poor a job the school system does of educating our kids if they can't figure out that this is unconstitutional. The state constitution has requirements for voting. One of the requirements is that you're a citizen. And that you're 18 years old. So now tell me, how can the city let non-citizens vote if the state constitution sets the sets the um, the qualifications? Right. You, you know what the, you know you know what the morons are arguing. They're saying that, uh, well, it doesn't say that you can't vote if you're not a citizen. But also, it doesn't say you can't vote if you're four years old. <laughs> Even Mayor de Blasio made that point repeatedly over the last uh, six or Blasio, seven years. Actually, uh, credit to de Blasio. He actually realizes how the city council is dumber than he is. Although, yep. although he didn't uh, he didn't actually go bother to veto the bill. Last question about Eric Adams. And I want to pick your brain on a couple of other issues. He is going to be the first mayor in my lifetime, maybe the first mayor ever, not to do a traditional swearing-in at City Hall. He's announced he's going to be sworn in in Brooklyn at the King's Theater. I know you're a Brooklyn guy, but what do you make of this break with tradition? Is the mayor trying to set a send a new message here, or what's the story? What do you think of him not uh, getting sworn in at city hall well i i feel bad i like i like i i, I like tradition um, but it's not a big deal i mean i i can also i thought about it because when i got elected and uh, it may still be the case there was a feeling that the outer boroughs were out of boroughs and i actually banned i said the only politically incorrect thing you can say to me is that you're an outer borough you're just an, another borough not an outer borough you're all equally important to me. Well, it just so happened that I got elected on the votes of the other boroughs. <laughs> but in any event, you, you want you know, Brooklyn, Queens, uh, the Bronx, and particularly Staten Island all feel alienated, and they feel that Manhattan gets all the attention. So anything you can do to put events there is a good thing. I thought about doing an inauguration there, but then what I did instead was I held my cabinet meeting once a month and I rotated boroughs. And I also held town hall meetings once a month. I did 92 of them. And I rotated boroughs. So uh, I got the heck out of Manhattan as much as I could. I remember those town hall meetings. And uh, you no, they were great. You, you, they sometimes were great. very raucous. But uh, you took on all comers. If people think you take on all comers on the radio, they should go back and look at some of these videos of you oh, mixing my it goodness, up. The radio is tame compared to that. <laughs> So far, so far, as far as I know, nobody's uh, chained themselves to a chair so they can't, can't be thrown out. 
That's for sure. You mentioned the record-setting crime in a dozen cities. Uh, We've spoken before, and you've spoken at length on your radio show about the problems that New York has when it comes to crime. You've cited bail reform. You've cited the uh, ending of stop and frisk. You've cited the doing away with the street crime unit. You've cited the decline in morale in the NYPD. But what is it in these uh, 11 other cities that's leading to record numbers when it comes to violent crime? Are all these cities emulating New York? poor policies or is there something else at play here no no they're all it's all uh, uh, national democratic uh, uh left-wing progressive socialist whatever you want to call it uh program for policing it's the black lives matter program for policing remember the democratic party uh is funded by the same uh, source that funds black lives matter george soros he's the largest contributor to the democratic party he's the largest contributor to black lives matter So he has a lot to say about the agenda of the Democrat Party. For example, 30 of the DAs around the country are elected by George Soros. The guy in uh, Philadelphia, who probably is the wackiest of all. Larry Krasner. Yeah, yeah, Krasner. uh, You know, he put about four million dollars in that race. I mean, Krasner doesn't think it's a crisis in Philadelphia. Philadelphia uh, just set a record for the most murders in the history of a city that goes back to the beginning. Never had as many murders as this year. That's not a crisis. I guess he doesn't care that people die. <laughs> what, what they, I mean, and the reality is he, he also, I mean, if you look at those 12 cities that have set records for murder, he probably elected a DA in seven or eight of them. And the mayors are just as crazy left wing as, uh, as the, as the uh, well, they're not actually. The mayors are not as bad as the DAs. I mean, the, look at uh, Lightfoot, who is pretty wacky. But she, she's uh, intelligent in comparison to Fox. But, I mean, Lightfoot is blaming the smashing grabs on the department stores. I mean, a department store is supposed to defend itself against 80 people coming in with uh, sledgehammers and, and, uh, and, and hammers and, and bats and overwhelming them and smashing up their counters and pushing their people to the ground and taking all their Rolex watches. What, what are they going to get? I mean, uh, I, I guess uh, they should have their own uh, each have their own private little police force. It's a perfect. They, yeah, they should have their own special forces. <laughs> it's it's crazy. They should go get they should go hide us. You know, SEAL Team 6. Talking with Rudy Giuliani, hear him every afternoon, 3 p.m., right here on WABC. In addition to being the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, in addition to being the former mayor of New York City, former uh, Reagan administration official in the Justice Department, uh, Mr. Mayor, you were also a a lawyer for President Trump uh, and very vocal on the issue of the potential of voter fraud. AP came out yesterday and they claimed that they had journalists spend months reviewing every potential case of voter fraud in the six battleground states that were disputed by President Trump. And according to AP, they found fewer than 475, which was a a number that they claimed would have made no difference in the election. 475 what? (laughs) They they just said 475 votes uh, of uh, instances of voter fraud. They're complete liars. I mean, they never bother to ask me. I I have sitting in the room next to me uh, uh, proof of at least, oh, I'd say 700,000 votes that were counted in Philadelphia illegal. Uh, Also, how about 68,000 people under age voted in uh, in Georgia? Under age. 
How, how do people 16 and 17 vote? And uh, the lying governor and, and, uh, and attorney general, the attorney general who, uh, and the governor who made the deal with Dominion to bring them in, uh, called it a perfect election. All you have to do, I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the best way to understand this is to take a look at the hard drive. And now that we, we have Miranda Devine's book. The Hunter Biden hard drive. Yeah. Uh, and we see that everything on it is true. I mean, there isn't a single thing on it that the Bidens have ever disputed. And if you want to you want to do a little arithmetic, they made about thirty five million dollars over 30 years. And Hunter explains toward the end of the hard drive, the whole scheme, he says, for 30 years, I've been supporting the family, paying all the bills. And I still have to give pop 50 percent of my income, mm. which I think tells you what the income is for. It's for Joe Biden's office. And the income is coming from people who wanted favors from the vice president and the senators and coming uh, to someone who does favors for them. So it's bribery. It's a, it's a 30 year sleazy, typical crooked city Democrat bribery scheme, except they got up to, you know, the multinational level. The whole thing was suppressed. The Bidens lied about it right through their teeth. Every Democrat lied about it. You don't think they'd lie about election? You think people that live the life that the Bidens live wouldn't cheat in an election? I mean, Biden, Biden cheated his way through law school. He cheated his, he cheated his way uh, through life. It's certainly the man is a thoroughly dishonest, crooked man in a party where the top of that party, I'm not saying the whole Democrat Party, the top of that party are, are uh, career criminals. The Clintons are criminals. The Bidens are criminals. I mean, the Biden crime family is exactly that. I mean, he uses his relatives as bag men. I mean, Jimmy Walker used sleaze bags as bag men. He takes his son, who is afflicted with uh, uh, the problem of addiction as a young man, and he ruins the kid's life. He puts him in with uh, the crookedest man in Ukraine. He puts him in with three uh, communist uh uh, operatives, one of whom is now at the you know at the bottom of the Yangtze River. Uh, this guy was operating with major organized criminals. How about he was a partner? Hunter was a partner with uh, 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 the the son of um, what's oh, his name, uh, the guy uh, in Boston. Yeah, Whitey Bulger's nephew. Whitey James. Bulger's nephew. Yes, yeah. right, James Bulger. I could I couldn't remember James's name. James Bulger. I mean that, that's I mean that's typical of who. He put his son in with, and the guy that that uh, that he uh, who was the head of, of the company that is still paying him, uh, he he disappeared uh, about two years ago. It's certainly going to be interesting to see what happens if there's a uh, Trump-Biden rematch in 2024. There now, won't be. Biden's not going to be around. By that. Yeah, that seems to be what the smart money is saying, or or able or able to uh, pronounce words. I mean, there's another big fraud. I mean, the whole thing is filled with fraud. That's why I find it ridiculous that people are so shocked that they cheated. First of all, Democrats have been cheating in elections for years. There's not an election in Philadelphia where dead people don't vote. Well, I guess it's a well, great way the, to uh, prolong first time life. I ran I for, first time I ran for mayor, thousands of dead people voted. I knew that. I mean, you've got, you've got to have your head in the sand like the New York Times. 
if you don't realize the Democrat Party has made cheating on elections an art form. And take a look at where they did it. They did it in crooked cities. They picked cities that are thoroughly crooked. Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta. I mean, when I, when I was the mayor of New York, I got kind of friendly with the mayor of Atlanta. And then I got really embarrassed when he ended up going to prison. I mean, these are cities with major, major corruption. People are going to jail left and right in these cities. Man, let me ask you. You don't think they cheat? I mean, it's, it's totally ridiculous for them to get so surprised that they'd be cheating. Also, what I... When I got the reports the day after the election and I drove to Philadelphia because the uh, sheriff there would not obey a court order to allow Corey Lewandowski and the attorney general of uh, Florida at the time, Pam Bondi, to observe uh, the paper ballots that we have a legal right to observe. And he was doing that because he was biding for time so that the Democrat higher court would reverse it, which they did. And I saw that the Republicans were kept behind pens. And uh, I was told by the leader of the group that uh, about 400,000 ballots had already been counted and they haven't been able to look at one of them. I said, I, uh, oh, I mean, I, 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 I am not, um, not demented like Biden, I actually can think. And I said to myself, why would they put the Republicans for the first time ever behind barriers and not let them look at a single piece of paper. And then what I called Pittsburgh and found out they did the same thing there in Detroit. They did the same thing there in Milwaukee. And they did the same thing there. And Minneapolis did the same thing there. And uh, Maricopa County and uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I said, gee, this is really funny. On election, uh, 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 election morning and then the day after, when we count the votes, for the first time in the history of America, Democrats have decided not to allow Republicans to look at paper ballots. And each one of them came up independently with the idea of having uh, fences put up. It's, and they're all behind the fences. And somehow they won't show us any of the paper. Now, that battle, uh, that battle went on for five months. They wouldn't show us any of the paper. Plus, the machines that are getting are showing everybody would now not allow anybody to inspect the machines. If I'm being accused of running a crooked election and my paper ballots are all valid, I'll let, I'll let the whole world come and look at it. I think it's certainly going to be interesting when uh, when it comes time to have the the issue of, uh, you know, of all this litigated, because I know they're still uh, going after your ability to practice law here in New York State. Uh, and uh, I can only tell if this is your uh, you getting wound up in the middle of the night. I can't imagine you. Well, in the I mean, I've got I've got uh, isn't me, uh, Frank. I've got I, I only I, I can only testify to one act of fraud that I saw. The other 4,000 come from affidavits that I have and videos that I have that the judges uh, would not listen to or look at, which is outrageous. They didn't have the courage to do their jobs. And uh, finally, we got the legislatures to do it. Uh, unfortunately, it was too late. But uh, everybody is 
putting their head in the sand. Mm. Uh, Mayor, I got to I got to get your take on this before we run out of time. Uh, last night, the House recommended criminal contempt charges for Mark Meadows, President Trump's former chief of staff, for stonewalling <laughs> the January sixth inquiry. Yeah, as I mean, if your laughter, if, if your laughter wasn't already an indication. Give me your opinion on the. My, uh, my opinion, my my opinion this. is that they're a bunch of clowns, and uh, while America while America is setting records for homicide. They're, wor- they're worried about uh, what the chief of staff said to the president of the United States about an incident they have blown way out of proportion. When they tell me that January 6th was like September 11th, it's about time that I think uh, they should probably go to the same nursing home as Joe Biden. On, on, on January 7th, the great insurrection was an insurrection that was attempted without a single gunshot being fired except by a police officer who unjustifiably killed an innocent woman. And they've covered that up. They didn't even, they didn't even seize a gun from any of the insurrectionists. So exactly how were they going to carry out this insurrection against a country that has nuclear weapons? Mm. Mm. What, with with uh, pitchforks? This is, this is the biggest... I mean, the Democrat Party, because they have nothing to run on, other than destroying our economy and making us a socialist communist country. And they have an, they have a defective president and vice president who's destroying this country. The only thing they can run on are, you know, phony trumped up, excuse the expression, <laughs> fr- frame ups of Republicans. May the other and, big and political then, and then absolute crimes committed by Democrats. Even uh, the child pornography that's on Hunter Biden's laptop is ignored. Well, locally, the other big political news that people are talking about today is the news that Andrew Cuomo may have to give back the $5.1 million he got from his book. Uh, There's some criticism of Jacob for how they handled this. They approved the payment, then they took it back. Uh, Do you think uh, Andrew Cuomo is going to have to end up paying this money back? Or is this something, given your legal background, is this something you think former Governor Cuomo may prevent? when he goes to court on from what i know he probably will because um it's kind of late to say i don't know exactly where the breach of contract is um if he they're going i guess they're going to have to prove that he violated the state ethics laws uh, by having i guess the charge is that he used uh staff to write his book and I know when I wrote my book, I did some of it while I was mayor. I followed Ed Koch's rules. I didn't use any of my staff. I didn't use any of the city stationery. And I wrote it at home. And I used, I used my own typewriter, not even a city typewriter. And I did it on my own time. And then I finished most of it after I left being, being mayor. But uh, there are very strict rules about it. Uh, I had it. I had a uh, Ken Curzon helped me write it, but he was he was not a city employee, and he was paid. You know, he was paid a good portion of of what we of what we got. Uh, so I did it. I did it based on those rules, and I got it approved by the by the ethics board and stuck with it. So uh, I don't. I can't tell you. They say he used staff, but that doesn't necessarily have to be true. Let's find out. I mean, how many things have we heard? 
are not true. I mean, it, it applies to the other side as well as it does ours. I think one of the things we should have learned over the last two or three years is, particularly after this last trial, not everything we hear is true. Let's wait and find out if they have a case. Mm. And, and, Mayor, you have led the city through several crises, uh, not just September 11th, but uh, issues related to crime, issues related to asbestos in schools, snowstorms, you name it. Now, the whole country, but even New York, we're facing a crisis when it comes to a cream cheese shortage. Uh, this is something that has a lot of our listeners panicked, uh, Mr. Mayor. How are you handling the cream cheese shortage? What advice would you give to our leaders these days? Uh, Biden? <laughs> you, you name it. Locally, nationally, I, I bagel would say stores, whatever. I, I would think Biden should check into a nursing home as quickly as possible. Uh, unfortunately, the choice then is we have Harris who doesn't even know where the Mexican border is. Uh, I would try to, I would try to store up as much. Uh, I would do the same thing uh, that, that we did. A, uh, people did a, a year, year and a half ago with toilet paper. I mean, I'd store up on as, as much cream cheese as possible. I'd even sacrifice the room in my refrigerator for ice cream and put cream cheese in there. Are you a, are you a lox guy, mayor? Or do you do butter? Do you do standard cream cheese? What's your no, bagel? I'm, I'm bigger. I'm, bi- I'm bigger on butter than cream cheese. Really? Okay. So, so the, the cream cheese not, crisis. So you can you can if you run into problems, particularly now that you have a you know a new baby and you, you need some cream cheese. I'm willing to give you mine, Frank. Uh, Mr. Mayor, so maybe I... maybe we'll trade butter for cream cheese. <laughs> It sounds good to me. Trouble? Are we having trouble with butter, too? Uh, not as far as I can see, but uh, I'm sure our listeners will correct me if uh, if I miss that one. <laughs> uh, Mayor, it is always a treat to talk with you. I appreciate you it taking is. the time. I, I Really, it means a great deal that you stay up late to chat with me and to chat with oh, our I listeners. Enjoy, I enjoy it. And, you know, sometimes I get up. In the middle of the night, listen to you. So you're very kind, man. Better watch out what you say. <laughs> Believe me, I will. I'll see. Right. I'll see right. you soon. Thank you, sir. Take care, Frank. If Great. you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call one 9222 That's one eight hundred eight four eight WABC. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. Oh, man, the snow is piling up. We're stuck here. We're stuck it. Hey, is that Brad Paisley? Yeah, that's Brad Paisley. He's stuck here, too. I'll have a broom. song blue christmas william shatner and brad paisley an instant classic from the shatner album shatner claws absolutely terrific we're gonna take your calls in just a minute 800-848-WABC that's 800-848-9222 i do want to remind you about a product that is endorsed by none other than joe from ron Concoma. oh yes i'm talking about life change tea you don't take my word for it take the word of joe from ron Concoma. you want energy look chances are 
if you're up in the middle of the night, it's because you can't sleep or because you're working and you're driving home and maybe you're feeling a little sleepy and you're listening to me, hoping I'll speak loud to keep you awake. I know what it's like. Life Change Tea gives you a ton of energy without caffeine. Chances are you might be awake right now because you're going to the restroom. You might be a little constipated. Life Change Tea keeps everything moving, if you know what I mean. It is a gentle daily cleanse that tastes great and uh, gets things moving. It, it does wonders for your digestive system. It's a cold tea. You brew it hot, but then you add a little water to it and store it in the refrigerator. I throw a little lemon juice in there and throw a little stevia in there. It comes in three great flavors. My favorite is the pomegranate. But if you go to Life Change Tea, if you go to getthetea.com, rather, excuse me, getthetea.com, that's the place that you can order it. If you use the promo code FRANK, you'll get to enjoy free shipping. While you're there, check out all their other great products designed for your optimum health. Don't miss out. Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com. It is the tea that makes you go, believe me. Hey, uh, next hour, we are just getting started. We have a ton of interesting stuff coming your way, including a, uh, you know, I mentioned this with John Katsimatidis last Sunday on the Cats Roundtable, but some of you may not have heard it. This Fordham University professor who has been fired for reasons that I find pretty alarming. So we'll get into that in a big way. Hey, uh, speaking of alarms, do, do you have the ring alarm system? I have one of these. And I have to say, it's nothing but trouble. It's nothing but trouble. And I'm sure I'll be grateful to it if it ever stops a burglar from burglarizing my home. But just uh, the other day, I think Saturday, Saturday or Sunday, this alarm starts going off at 3 o'clock in the morning. It says the front door was tampered, but there was nobody there. It just, but this happens all the time. It used to happen with the back door. I had to replace it. I don't, I don't want to replace the one in the front door now. But I don't know about these ring alarm doorbells. I was reluctant to get it in the first place. Now I'm even more dissatisfied, i got to tell you. All right. Uh, a lot of more content coming your way for the next hour. To be continued. of stories that you hear about and you just can't believe. And then you learn a little bit more about that story and it turns out that, well, it's not really true. This happens all the time. It happens all the time. It happens more now that we're in a 24-hour media environment because there's such a rush to report on things that get clicks. Clicks, 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 clicks. That's what it's all about. Clicks, clicks, clicks. And then... It turns out, well, had we taken some time to actually find out what was happening here, then we would not have reported what was 
being reported. The there are several good examples of it. The woman that was raped supposedly on the SEPTA train and all the observers just sat there and watched. Well, it turns out it wasn't really true. Nicholas Sandman mocking that American Indian person at the nation's capital. Turned out that wasn't really true. Uh, Richard Jewell, of course, Richard Jewell is a is is a special case for a bunch of reasons. But you, you get the the picture. There are all sorts of stories that seem that you can't believe them. And it turns out once you learn more about them, they're not true. This is a story which I hope falls into that category. Because if this is true, this is nuts. I, I just I just give up if this story is true. A Fordham University lecturer was apparently fired after mixing up the names of two black students. Pardon me while I bang my head against the wall. This is crazy. What's being reported, according to the Fordham University student newspaper, is that this professor, Christopher Trogan, who's a lecturer in Fordham University's English department, was fired because of his response to an incident on September 24th where he mixed up the names of two students who walked into class late. The students allegedly felt disrespected after the incident and believed the mistake was made because the two were both black. Trogan... That's a professor there, Christopher Trogan, emailed his students in the composition class that he was teaching shortly after the incident occurred and addressed the mix up, apologizing for what he did. Quote, the offended student assumed my mistake was because I confused that student with another black student. I have done my best to validate and reassure the offended student that I made a simple human error. It has nothing to do with race. The article said that of the two students who were involved in the mix-up, one of them claims that Trogan repeatedly used the wrong name throughout four classes. Quote, I felt really disrespected. I did not feel heard because every time he misnamed me, I would tell him, and it just seemed like he would brush it off or that he didn't care. The email that the professor sent to the students also outlined everything he has done for minorities, according to the newspaper, and stated that the English class is centered specifically and explicitly around issues of justice, equality, and inclusion. Trogan added that his entire life has been focused on the issues of justice, equality, and inclusion, and listed what he has done in relation to racial justice during his career. The dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and associate vice president of uh, the Arts and Sciences told this professor on September 26th that he was suspended from his job with pay and benefits and noted that he was under investigation by Fordham University. The professor is then notified that he's terminated on October 29th. However, Trogan said in an email to students following the termination that he wasn't informed of why he was being investigated until his termination. Quote, 
I was never informed of the charges against me, nor of the nature of the investigation of which I was the suspect. I was kept completely in the dark. Trogan told the newspaper that in the letter of termination, the person that fired him cited the basis of his firing was the email he sent to students on September 24th. So what appears to have happened here is that two students showed up to class late. Those students weren't punished. A professor makes an innocent response, an innocent mistake confusing the two names of the students. The students happen to be black. The professor then apologizes and cites all the great stuff he's done for racial minorities over the years. And he's fired. I hope there is something more to this. But what's being reported by this Fordham newspaper, The Observer, it would seem to indicate that A, mixing up these students' names, and B, the wording of his email apologizing for doing so, resulted in his firing. If that's the case, then I'm done. We, we need to change the name of this planet because the planet Earth will no longer cut it. We need to become the planet Mashuga or the planet Loco because this is nuts. This is nuts. I would love to hear your reaction to this. 800-848-WABC. Now, I actually think it's more racist on the part of the student that was offended and the administration at Fordham University to assume that he did this because, because the two students were black. Well, it goes to show you you're very focused on race. He could have certainly mixed up the names of two white students or two Hispanic students or two Asian students. He's getting fired because he mixed up the name of two students? Show me something in this professor's record that indicates that he was not a good teacher. Show me a negative evaluation from a supervisor. Show me negative student evaluations. Show me this professor showing up to work drunk. Show me this professor not doing a good job teaching the composition material. Show me something. Because if he is getting fired because he mixed up the name of two students and then sent an email apologizing about it and he didn't pick the exact right verbiage in this email then there ought to be there ought to be protests every day outside of Fordham University demanding that this guy get his job back this is crazy this is uh, insane 800-848-WABC you know how many names i get wrong on a daily basis with the people that work here we have we have we have six people working here named Matt, and I don't know anyone else's name. I, if if somebody's not named Matt or Kevin, then I, or or Frank, then it's a shot in the dark whether I know their name. You, you know what I call them if they're not named Matt, Frank, or Kevin? Hey, buddy. Hey, stranger. Hey, pal. How you doing? I mean. Uh, I guess I better be careful with the race of the people involved here. Your reaction, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Mikey is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mikey. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Eh, 
I'm just trying I'm to woke up fine. and woke up to this. I just wanted to say something, and I don't know if this has anything to do with what you're talking about, but, well, it probably, maybe it does. But most of the delis that I go to, <laughs> when, I, when I tell them I want a quarter pound of, you know, turkey, they, they, they go, they don't hear me. Or they, or they say, oh, you mean a half a pound? Or what do you want? I said, or if I ask for, you know, like chicken wings, oh, okay, uh, no, we don't have them. I said, well, you don't have chicken wings? You know, it's like, I'm telling you, this is not one deli. This is a lot of delis that I go to. They, You have to really yell or you have to like, you know, not yell, but, you know, you have to really like speak up, speak up. You know, and, and do you think do you think the reason they're mishearing your order is because of some sort of implicit racial bias on their part? I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I, so do I, Mikey. So do I. Appreciate the call. Thanks for listening. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Now, the other student involved in this mix up, Chantel Sims, said that Trogan's response to the incident wasn't necessary. It seemed a little excessive. Like all you needed to do was say sorry, and would have been fine. We were not actually that upset about him mixing up our names. It was more so the random things he would throw into the response. A Fordham University spokesperson declined to comment because Trogan might have might take private action against the university. I hope this guy does take private action against this university, because if there's anybody that deserves a comeuppance, it's Fordham for this. 800-848-9222. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Fordham doesn't want to comment, but something tells me you may. Four open lines if you dare to do so. One eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Let me say hello to Richard in Parsippany. Hello, Richard. Yeah, hi Frank. Hi. Yeah, hi Frank. Hi. Well, you're identifying the black students. Yeah. I guess the professor has got to be white, right? Yes, he's white. I'll he's bet. Right. Okay. So, who are the administration? Are they are they uh, black people? Who's the head? Who's making the decision to fire him? We need to know that racial profile to, to complete the picture. Well, so let's say so. Let's say the person the person's name is Eva Badowska. I'll, I don't know her race, but let's say she's white. What does that mean? Well, it means racial bias. It, so if a look, white person... Look, 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 let's be, let's be real. The, the landscape of the United States is a racial battlefield today. It's a, the constant attacks on white people. You could be sure that these are probably Jews doing this. There you, you go. Sure. There you go, Richard. Uh, there but, I go where? Don't yeah, tell well, me where I yeah, go. Well, there you go. Taking, uh, taking another shot at the Jews. You know, I don't understand. I'm of the belief that every caller should be heard on this show, right? And yet I, you know, I look through a large, uh, a compendium that our talent, telephone talent coordinator, Ryan, has in front of him. And I say, what is that? Is that the Yellow Pages? I didn't think they still published the Yellow Pages. He says, no, that's a list of callers that are banned from being on the radio. When one of these callers call, we just let them languish on hold. They're banned. They're not allowed to go on. I said, well, what did they do? Oh, this person did this. That person did this. That person did this. And yet somehow Richard and Parsippany is still able to not only come on the radio and call me a dirtbag, which you're right, fine, but to blame the Jews – for the war on white people, uh, something tells me when they give out medals to veterans for the war on white people, Richard and Parsippany will be waiting quite a while. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I would appreciate it if we didn't always have to blame the Jews. 
The Jews aren't always responsible for the problems of the world. Once in a while, maybe it's the Alsatians or uh, the, the uh, you name it, uh, right? I mean, maybe it's the Inuits. Can't always blame the Jews. Michelle in the Bronx, hello. Hi, Frank. I want you to know that I have never called radio before, but I'm listening to you about the Fordham uh, University professor. And similarly, my husband, who is a professor at Purchase University, has a similar kind of a thing that I I just can't believe. I'm absolutely sick to my stomach. Really? So what happened? Tell us what happened. First of all, thank you for calling, but what happened? Well, what happened is he's a professor at the University of Purchase in the Conservatory of Dance. He is a very well-known dancer in American Ballet Theater of years in here in New York City. And he's been a tenured professor there for 22 years. A few, well, now, eight weeks ago, he walked into one of his classes and saw papers strewn all over the place on the floor. And he thought, what is all this? And then all the the halls were strewn with paper. He bent down to pick up a paper, and the students had done an investigation, like, and on him. Uh, some of the faculty members had decided that they were going to have their students get to know really who was teaching them and what their professors had done in their lives. Someone found a picture on his Facebook. He had chronicled his dance career for. Oh, God, 30-some years on Facebook, had over 20,000 photos. And they did, they were looking at these photos, and someone found a photo of him doing a ballet 50 years ago that has appeared in dance publications at the libraries of fine arts and that, of him doing a Blackmore. What's a Blackmore? What is that? A Blackmore Is that like blackface? Is, yes, yes. Yes, absolutely. Now, the ballet is called Petrushka. It was done in 1913 by the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Right. It was so a very famous Your, your husband lost his job at purchase because of this photo? He didn't lose his job yet. This oh. happened eight weeks. They've been put, they put him on, like, uh, he's home. They won't let him go back to the college. He gets assignments from HR Every week that he has to do, it's demeaning and demoralizing. And I think where he's headed is exactly oh. what happened to this professor at Florida. Michelle, that is just awful. I hope not. And, uh, and Michelle, do you have email? Can you keep me informed on this? Yes, I can. Yeah, because- please. So, uh, please, if you would email me after the show, I'd love to stay in touch with you on this, and I'd love to keep chronicling uh, this story as there are developments. Uh, my uh, my email is uh, Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O at wabcradio.com. Uh, but uh, please, I, I think that's awful if that if that's what's happening to your husband, and I think that's a real shame. Nobody should be canceled for something for for behavior that was innocuous fifty years ago. Yes, that's the, that's the issue, and it wasn't done maliciously. It was just part of his. Right, I, I understand. Right, the gov- as I pointed out yesterday, the governor of Virginia was wearing blackface. I think yesterday, uh, we've seen uh, people. We've seen Joy Behar in blackface. We've seen uh, uh, all sorts of people wearing wearing blackface, and uh, I just I think uh, to, I think that's just crazy. I'm not defending the practice of wearing blackface for entertainment purposes these days, but to dig up this photo from 50 years years ago from a ballet that everybody else did the same thing. It's not as if he went to a Klan meeting out on Long Island. No, 
no, and it's not something that was done maliciously. Actually, the photograph was put on the web in 2015. Yeah. Uh, Michelle, stay in touch with me. Please email me today if you would. So it's Frank um, F. F, is it Frank Morano or F. Morano? It's a Frank dot Morano at WABCRadio.com. I'm going to put you on hold, and uh, and uh, Ryan will reiterate my email to you to make sure you have a Frank dot Morano at WABCRadio.com. Um, uh, if you would, Ryan, just give Michelle again, make sure she has my proper email because I want to stay in touch. Peter from the planet Meshugana. Hello, Peter. Uh, hi, Frank. Yeah, I, I've decided uh, I agree with you. That That's where we're living now. This is this is insane. Now, these students claim that they felt disrespected, and the university apparently took that into account in this situation. Now, how about the other side of it? What about these students disrespecting the professor by not having the decency to show up to class on time? Okay? Uh, isn't that uh, disrespecting walking in on the middle of a lecture? How about why can't they get their butts out of bed and in, and to class on time? Uh, the, the university didn't take that disrespect into consideration, did they? Clearly not, Peter. Clearly not. It's crazy out there. As uh, Bob used to say, uh, the world is sick and getting sicker. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Tom's in Boston. Hello, Tom. Hi, Frank. Uh, I, I, I like uh, Dave Chappelle. And I watch him once in a while. But sometimes he has a skit where he says, uh, yeah, white people think all black people look alike. So maybe the professor, again, their names mixed up. These two black students probably said, uh, probably thought about that. And, and uh, they wanted to be called by their, own, their regular name. But uh, he, they said, why would this professor get our names wrong? He, he's seen us. He knows us. Right. I mean, I think that is the implication there, Tom. But uh, but he could just as easily have gotten two white students' names wrong. Yeah, but the thing, uh, uh, Frank, is uh, Chappelle said uh, the white people think all black people look alike. So I don't know if they even might have heard that. Uh, Tom, uh, no, no, no disrespect to Dave Chappelle, but I don't really want to see this guy lose his job because of your interpretation of a Dave Chappelle joke. As great as those jokes might be, 800-848-9222. I think we have to move on because I'm going to blow a gasket. Ed is in Massachusetts. Hello, Ed. Hi, Frank. I think you, I think you and, the, and the woman who called in about her husband who's the dance professor, I, I, I don't think you quite are looking at this in the right way. This has nothing to do with the merits of these individual cases. This is the way revolutionary movements enforce discipline. They make examples of people. Can I give you an analogy from my own family's history? I mean, I would appreciate it if you could avoid blaming the Jews for whatever your issue is. No, this is not blaming the Jews. My dad was in the Navy in World War II. The first day, they're all sort of lined up. I think they might have even been in their still in their civilian clothes. It's like the scene in the, an officer and a gentleman, you know, with Lou Gossett, when they're all there, you know, all the recruits are there, and he's walking up and down. Sure, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm a fan them. of the movie, yes. And so my dad was probably the tallest. He, my dad was about 6'3", and the guy who was the chief petty officer, his name was Arthur L. Zelinsky. My father ended up thinking the world of him, and he was one of the you know, formative characters in his life. He's walking up and down looking at these guys, 
he reaches up, he smacks my father across the face, I think with a closed fist, and knocked him right on the ground. And then he turns to everybody and he says, if I'll do that to this guy who didn't do anything, you just think of what I'll do to you if you cross me up. Wow. So this is sort of what's going on. What they do is they take trivial little things, these sort of woke left-wing administrations, and they make examples of people to enforce this. This is what I would expect. It doesn't surprise me. Well, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me either, uh, Ed, but the lack of surprise does little to assuage my outrage. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Gail is in West Orange, New Jersey. Hello, Gail. Hi. Good uh, Good morning. Morning. I think the, I, I think there's more to this story. I hope you're right, Gail. I hope you're right. I truly believe there's more to the story. That's not enough to just Get rid of a get um, get rid of a teacher. It's, there's more to the story. You, you, I I pray that you're right because that would mean there's still some semblance of sanity in the world. Uh, because I, and that's why I began the, my commentary saying there's often more to the story, and I hope that's the case here, Gail. Because if there's not, then I just give up. Uh, Bob is in Queens. Hello, Bob. Yes, well, this is a very bad story, and but but I want to talk about something that Giuliani said, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, he's he said he has tens of thousands of votes that could potentially overturn an election, and really, I mean, if he has tens of thousands of votes that can overturn an election, he must release those votes. And really, you should have challenged him on that. You should have said, Mister Mayor, when are you really going to release those votes to the press? so that the press can look at them and scrutinize them. And I was a little bit disappointed you didn't say that, because this is big news. This this should be the biggest headline now in the United States. Well, Giuliani cu- says of he has thousands cu- of votes that could potentially overturn an election. Couple of if things, Bob. Not- couple of things, Bob. One, uh, the mayor has said that before. Um, number two, he was already I, I, he was already on such a I don't want to characterize it this way. He was already on such a lengthy rant about voter fraud. And I wanted to touch upon some other issues that I wasn't that eager to extend the conversation. Number three, uh, because the mayor lost his law license in New York for representations that he made about that case, I, I, I really was not eager to help feed the case uh, against his law license since he uh, he got suspended without a hearing. And so I didn't want to further complicate matters. And number four, I'll be honest with you, he spends so much time on his own radio program every day and on Sunday talking about these voter fraud allegations that um, I I felt like it was a little bit overkill for me to bring it up again. And then lastly, uh, that's why I pointed out to the the Associated Press Review saying that they investigated every single allegation of voter fraud in these six states, and they came up with 475. Um, And lastly, in the court filings that the mayor has made on this, the courts have found that there was not sufficient evidence in those 10,000 instances uh, that that he referenced. So the mayor has said that before. So I don't think it's the kind of blockbuster news that you that you thought it was. 
But he keeps bringing it up. He doesn't shut up about it. He keeps bringing it up, bringing it up. And finally, it's time for someone to challenge him, no matter who it is, and say, release those votes. Because if you're so, I mean, you know, no matter what you think about what, what, what happened here, if you have those votes, release them. This is the biggest news in America. But he doesn't shut up about it. And if he wants to keep going on about it, he's going to get his chance in court to prove. Yeah, well, that's true. And, that, and that's the other thing. He, as you said, he'll get his chance in court if he has proof that supports that. Uh, he'll get his opportunity uh, when he has his hearing on his law license to bring that stuff up, uh, Bob. But I have to be honest, I'm so over the voter fraud issue. And the only reason I brought it out, uh, brought it up is because of the AP story yesterday showing uh, that they only found 475 instances. I wanted to get his reaction. I figured he would say something short like, oh, you know, I don't believe it because of X or, you know, it's a flawed sub- survey because of Y. Um, I didn't think it would lead him to go on a whole lengthy commentary about why there actually was all this voter fraud. And I wanted to get to some other things. In fact, there's a lot of other stuff I had on my agenda that I didn't get to. I wanted to talk about Letitia James and the governor's race and some other things. But um, I'll tell you what we're going to do in just a minute. Those of you that are holding, Bill, Gail, Jimmy, Mike, Ted, Fredo, and Larry, I will get to you. Now, the, the rest of you, we're going to give you an opportunity to win some money when we do the $1,000 minute uh, in just a moment. If you are the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222 and you have never played the $1,000 minute before and you think you have what it takes to answer 10 questions in 60 seconds, then dial now. 1-800-848-9222. Seventh caller, you'll get an opportunity, if you've never played before, to win $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Meantime, for the rest of you, if you are like me and you are frustrated these days at how difficult it has become to find a belt that still fits around your waist, then chances are you need to join me and Greg Kelly and reach out to Mitch Suss, the founder of the Skinny Center. The Skinny Center is in Westchester County, and they are experts when it comes to helping people lose weight. They tailor their approach based on your individual body chemistry. And they have comprehensive lab testing, which pinpoints abnormalities in your body chemistry and analyzes why you can't lose weight. It's worked out great for Greg Kelly. The guy looks terrific. And I'm looking forward to going on this program right after the new year. If you want to join me as part of your New Year's resolution, take off the pounds, call the Skinny Center right now. Or, I mean, it doesn't have to be at 430 in the morning. It could be a little later. Uh, 914-703-4811. Write this number down. That's 914-703-4811. Or go to theskinnycenter.com. That's theskinnycenter.com. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
sunshine of a friendly gaze. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home. I met a man who lives in Tennessee, and he was heading for Pennsylvania and some homemade pumpkin pie. From Pennsylvania, folks are traveling down to Dixie's sunny shore. From Atlantic to the great Perry Como, there's no place like home for the holidays. Ain't that the truth? Uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we've discussed this morning, you want to find us on social media. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's facebook.com slash Morano fan. And if you like the page, you'll receive uh, an invitation to join our Facebook group where uh, you can comment on the subjects that we cover on this show and interact with other people that uh, are also listening to the show. Uh, also on Twitter. Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O, and you can email me Frank Morano M. That's M O R A N O at wabcradio.com. But now it's time for one lucky listener to win some money. The other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer ten questions correctly in one minute, and you could win one thousand dollars. Here's your host, Frank. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, Brian in Yonkers. Hello, Brian. Hi, Frank. How's it going? Hello there. Very good, thank you. How are you? Good. You ever go to that um, that casino that they have up there in Yonkers? I've only been there once for that. Um, so no, I don't. I don't uh, frequent it. <laughs> okay. Well, did you win money the one time that you were there? No, that was always for a concert. Uh, oh, okay. actually, it was a concert I was for. Yeah, who was mm -hmm. performing? Um, oh, what the hell? Actually, their name. Um, boy, I can't think of their name at the moment for some reason. <laughs> I'm starting to doubt your oh. whole story here, Brian. Oh no, 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 no! I'll, it'll come back to me. <laughs> oh, fair enough. All right. Have you heard this yeah. uh, segment before? I, I've heard of it. I've never. I never had the radio on at this time in the morning oh, before, so well, I'm thrilled that I got through well, it. Well, no, we're I thrilled recall. to have you. Holy cow. Well, so why why do you find the radio on at this time now? Why why were you listening of today of all? Oh, night? I I I um I couldn't sleep anymore. I got <laughs> I got up at four AM wide awake thinking like it was seven or eight in the morning and I was like, Oh, holy cow. So okay. Turn the radio on just to see what you guys are talking about. All right. Well, mm -hmm. so let me explain to you how the contest works. We have 10 yes. trivia questions. They're very simple trivia questions. The tricky part mm -hmm. is not to get tripped up on the questions, not okay. to get nervous, right? So, um, yeah. and because you have to answer them in 60 seconds, you, you, if you answer a question correctly, I'm just going to move on to the next question, right? And okay. I'm not going to say, mm -hmm. oh, that's great. Congratulations. You got it right. I'm just moving on. And if you get a question, and incorrect, then you then you lose. And if you answer all ten correctly, okay. you will be the proud recipient of a thousand dollars. And then maybe you will go and spend oh, that money yeah. at Yonkers Raceway. Right. Oh, by the way, it was the gin blossoms I saw up there. Ah, that, I like the gin good. blossoms. Okay, I like <laughs> yeah, the gin blossoms. Good. I do. They are good, actually. Yes. All right, you ready mm -hmm. to go? Alrighty. Yes, sir. All right, let's do it. Name a type of bird. Um. Um. Uh, an eagle. What state is Atlantic City in? New Jersey. Who painted the Mona Lisa? 
Oh, Van Gogh, I think. Uh. No, unfortunately, it was uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, painted. Da Vinci. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. uh, Brian, but thanks for playing. Uh, if you want, if you want, uh, Ryan, not to be confused with Brian, Ryan will give you a complimentary The Other Side of Midnight baseball cap. Grab Brian's information if you would, Ryan, and uh, hopefully he won't go away completely empty handed. It's funny that we're giving away these caps now because uh, years ago when I was a producer for Curtis and Kuby, we used to do a promotion. It's funny that Brian comes from Yonkers of all places. We used to do this promotion of all all places at Yonkers Casino at the raceway there. And what we do is – and we did this a few times, meaning uh, it was 16 weeks and then we did it – we brought it back again a year later – what we would do is I would walk around the casino, and this is going back 15, 16 years. I would walk around the casino for an hour. I would say, all right, I'm going to be in the casino for an hour from 3 to 4 p.m. with my WABC cap and my WABC jacket. And if you come over to me and you, you find me, you win a prize. And most of the time they did find me. But um, we're going to have to try and bring that promotion back because it was fun. We would call it um, Where in the World is Frank Morano? You remember that show, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? We would do this promotion where we would describe what was happening, and we had this cool Carmen Sandiego-type music. Yes! Well, he works with Ron and Curtis on a show that's in the morning. He's a friendly, helpful fellow who lives in Staten Island. He's an honest politician, but now he's lost in Yonkers. Tell me, where in the world is Mr. Frank Moran? So that was fun. I never played at the Yonkers Casino. Uh, my only time visiting was working when I would walk around for an hour each week. And that was fun. I got to meet a lot of interesting people. And uh, a lot of people had a good experience there. And I do like the Gin Blossoms, actually. I'm not a big concert goer, but if I were to go to a concert, I would see the Gin Blossoms. By the way, uh, since the holidays are here, this is the time of the year where we reflect and realize how blessed we are. It's also the time to help make a difference, and our radio station is doing just that as we team with Cohen Children's Medical Center, a proud partner of Children's Miracle Network Hospitals for our third annual Holiday Radiothon for Kids this Friday. All the money stays right here, benefiting the children and their families in this community. This year, you can give the gift that has meaning. Money raised will be used to improve life-saving care and equipment, pediatric research, child life services, and more. Download the 77 WABC app and listen to hear more about how you can help this Friday. But you don't have to wait until Friday. You can help right now. Text HERO to 51555 and donate today. Join Cohen Children's Medical Center and 77 WABC in making a difference for the holidays. By the way, uh, we also have the 77 WABC clip of the day. This comes to us from the Bernie and Sid show. Uh, You can hear Bernie and Sid every day from 6 to 10. I think uh, Sid is solo today from what I understand. Not sure when Bernie is coming back. I know he's uh, dealing with some issues related to his health. We certainly wish him the best, and that is the God's honest truth. And uh, I uh, don't miss the Bernie and Sid show 
any day. I listen every morning, and you should too if you're not. It's on from 6 a.m. till 10 a.m. Here they were talking about the mask mandate. So now they're saying boosters, five of them, six of them, seven of them, whatever it takes. And who's at the very lead of all that? The man who has lied to this nation more than anybody I know in recent years. I know the New York Times used to love to print stories about how many times Donald Trump lied, which was just beyond silly. My brother-in-law, Harry, would tell me, he would send me the article, look, the New York Times figured out that Donald Trump lied 36 times last week. Great, I lied 42. Dr. Fauci has lied more than anybody to this nation, maybe in my lifetime. There you have it. Sid Rosenberg, not a fan of of Dr. Fauci, to put it mildly. By the way, I got an email here from a listener um, who says that uh, we should have other prizes for the 10-question contest. You know, we meant to do that. We, We started that. We did that once. Because our first lady, Margot Katsimatidis, she actually suggested that. So remind me, when we do that tomorrow, we have to give a prize out if they get eight or nine questions correct. Because uh, that's a good point. You know, this way it's not all or nothing. So uh, maybe we'll do that. Maybe it's $500 if you answer nine correct. Maybe it's 250 if you answer eight correct. Maybe it's 125 if you answer seven correct. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Although I got to say I was was sorry because the – the caller, Brian, he sounded like a bright guy. And this is what I'm saying. The questions are not difficult. People just get tripped up. They get nervous on the radio. It happened to me when I played Beat Bernie. But, um, I mean, who painted the Mona Lisa is not a difficult question. It's not. All right. 800-848-WABC. Hey, one thing I did want to uh, make sure that I that I mentioned, and I – had anticipated talking about it earlier, but I was looking for for audio to help tell this story, and uh, I wasn't able to find the kind of clips that I was looking for. But while I was away uh, after the birth of my son, I was very sorry to learn that one of our most devoted listeners had passed away, and she was not just a listener to this show – But she was a regular uh, caller and she was a a participant in the Facebook group. For those of you that are in the Facebook group, you may have interacted with her. I I posted some information about her on social media, and that is uh, Peggy Eason. Peggy Eason, and you can learn more about her by going to her website, Peggy E-A-S-O-N dot com. She was a wonderful lady. They called her the Chocolate Diva. She called herself the Chocolate Diva. And she was a cabaret singer, and she was a great singer. And she had been a very good singer since 2009. And she was a very big presence on the cabaret scene. I met her many times over the years. She called me many times over the years. And I have to tell you, in a medium that often attracts people that are – for whatever reason, angry or kind of negative or just upset at the world or filled with hate or eager to call other people names. Peggy, and I don't know how she died. I'm I'm hoping to get in touch with uh, somebody that that knew her better or maybe somebody in her family. But this woman was the most positive woman I've ever met in my entire life. This woman was incredible. She was blind. She was blind her whole life. And 
I'll tell you, for somebody that's never been able to see, she had the greatest attitude in the world. Not only was she an incredibly talented singer, but she was someone that would listen to this show, I think, every day. She listened to the show every day. She had she was just so positive. If she disagreed with something that I did or something a guest did, she would always try to find a way to see the other side. That's what I say. She had great vision for somebody that was blind. She just had a beautiful voice, and you could see just by hearing her speak why she was such a great singer. She called me all the time, and it didn't matter what I was talking about or it didn't matter what I was promoting. She would always find a way to get behind it. I remember four years ago I was uh, I was talking about a uh, the, uh, the need in New York State for a constitutional convention, and she called up and said, "Well, good, yeah, I'm for that now. If you're for it, I'm for it. And I, I'd like this is what I'd like to get out of the constitutional convention, and um, you know whatever I was promoting. Uh, let's say ping pong, for instance. If, if I was talking about playing ping pong, well, you know, you know, she would say, "I wish I could play ping pong with you." She just had such an incredible attitude, and. She would post all the time in the Facebook group and these losers that pick on everybody in the Facebook group, they would pick on her. Look, she was blind. So she would post by speaking into her phone. So they would pick on her for getting a word wrong or spelling a word wrong. And all these people who have nothing better to do, they'd all pick on her. And you could still search her name in the Facebook group and you could see some of these interactions and and say, hey, what's the matter with you? Can't you spell hickory or whatever? And she would never get upset. She would just say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm blind. And it's talk to talk to text. And you compare her attitude to the attitude of so many other people that you encounter in life who are just so miserable and I'll tell you, I hope I, you know, I know Peggy's in heaven, but this world is much worse off for her having left it. And I'm reminded of, uh, you know, I, people can call me anytime and leave me a voicemail at eight one six eight Morano, and Peggy would frequently call. And six years ago, uh, after my very close friend Joe Franklin passed away, G- um, Peggy called me. And she left me a voice message talking a little bit about uh, Joe Franklin. Hello, Frank. This is Peggy Eason. I'm calling to let you know first, I I love the show as always. You're just the greatest. But I also wanted to let you know that we're having a memorial service for Joe Franklin at the Metropolitan Room on March 9th. Um, I also wanted to let you know that I did not get my prize, the Phil Boy's uh, jacket. And so I was wondering when I was going to get it. Anyway, you have a great day. Bye. Now, if you're wondering what she's talking about towards the end, uh, we had the, a jacket made for the uh, the vice president at the station I was working at at the time, and it didn't fit him. So I said, why don't we give it away to a listener? And obviously, it's going to have to be a listener that doesn't mind the name Phil Boyce on the jacket. And obviously, if you're blind, you may not mind that it's somebody else's name on the jacket. So we had a talent competition, and Peggy won this on-air talent competition going away because she was such a great singer. And she called and made sure I knew that she got her jacket. Good morning, Frank. This is Peggy Eason. I just wanted to let you know that I have my jacket. 
and I will be wearing it when I come to Lorenzo's on April 17th. Thank you. And and uh, she did she did come to Lorenzo. She sang a song, did a duet with Joe Piscopo, who you could hear every Sunday night at the station. Recently, she was just on with um, with Joe Piscopo as well uh, and sang with him at Lorenzo's on uh, on Staten Island. And after those calls, I was doing another show. Uh, this is again after Joe Franklin passed away. And I had Joe's son, Brad, on the on the show and uh, Peggy called in again to talk about Joe Franklin. Joe was very nice personally to me. Um, I think I told you when my husband was dying, we, we spent last New Year's in his restaurant, and he wouldn't take any money. He said, your money is no good here. And he made my husband feel very, very oh, comfortable. Oh, well, isn't that and, nice? Yeah, we'll yeah, definitely tell him. Time, and every time Joe saw me, he came to all of my shows. So I just want you to let Brad know that his father was very important to me. And I sang, we had a memorial for him over at the Metropolitan Room, and, and Bob Diamond, who was used to be his director, m- made sure that I was included in the program. Oh, so that's I, great. Now, this is the one thing, I, you know, usually I'm pretty glad that listeners are not able to search the audio of this show because I say so many stupid things on any given day that I would hate for anybody that I interact with to just be able to go to Google and say, oh, Frank said this. And uh, all of a sudden uh, that comes right up. I'm glad that feature does not yet really exist. But I wish I did have a better catalog of Peggy calls because she would call all the time and she would frequently say such wonderful things. Now, I'm going to read like this is the typical of the kind of comment that she would make in the Facebook group. Right. So this is what she said. Frank, you mentioned the Barrow House last night. I love that bar. I come all the way from New York City just to go there. I love the atmosphere. I love the cocktails. Perhaps one day we can, uh, I can buy you a drink there, the Chocolate Diva. That's the kind of person she was. She would go out of her way to patronize a small business that she liked. She would go out of her way to say something nice. There's another post that she wrote. Uh, this is a hard sub. I don't remember what this was in response to, but... This is what she wrote. This is a hard subject for me. When my husband, Stephen, was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, we were both devastated. The one fear Stephen had was that I would abandon him. One of the things I did was to make sure that he knew that as long as he lived, I would never, ever abandon him. We were a team from the beginning to the end. Had he lived four more years in a coma, I would have taken care of him. But after a certain amount of time, I would have moved on because that's what he he would have wanted me to do. I remember that show. That was the show we did about, let's say your loved one is in a coma. How long do you have to wait before moving on relationship-wise? And um, and she was just a wonderful lady. And I wanted to acknowledge her on the air. I do believe in heaven. And I do believe that um, a lot of the people that pass on from this earth can still look and hear what goes on. And uh, if if Peggy is in heaven, which I have no doubt she is, then I am sure she's listening to this radio show. I'm going to miss her, and I am hopeful that um, that uh, her legacy will live on in the many people that she met and befriended and entertained over the years. Lastly, I do want to mention, uh, I want to give a happy birthday shout-out to my brother Nick. My brother Nicholas is celebrating his birthday today. Happy birthday to you, Nick. Uh, He is a a very bright young man. He's a Ph.D. I believe he is the first Murano 
to be a Ph.D., uh, also happens to be a Marxist. So you can imagine some of the debates that we get into from time to time. But I'll tell you, even though I was a Trump supporter and he's a Marxist and he was a Bernie Sanders supporter, it is shocking the amount of things that we agree on. You go down the list and you start agreeing. That's why I start. I tell people, don't assume the people that you don't agree with are your enemy. You can still get along with them and you can still do all sorts of other things. So uh, he uh, want to wish a happy birthday to him and a uh, happy birthday as well to my cousin Natalie, who's also celebrating her birth today. All right. Uh, we'll do 15 seconds of fame next. Give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. We have one, two, three open lines if you want to be heard. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Mid- Midnight straight ahead. Start your morning with Frank Morano on 77 WABC. Thank you, Andy B., for our theme song. It is time, as we end each and every show, to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. All you have to do is dial 800-848-9222. Time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Paul in Brick. No, Paul. Neil on Staten Island. Yes, Frank, you know when the young baby Carmine embraces his partial Jewish heritage when about age five and Rachel gives him a buttered bagel and he says, Mom, I want my bagel with a schmear. <laughs> Mike in Pennsylvania. Yeah, Joe Biden, when he had his little colonoscopy uh, two weeks ago, they found a, um, they found a polyp. A doctor acted quickly, removed it so it wouldn't develop into a brain tumor. John in Fort Greene. Uh, the Cap- Richard Summers, captain of the first Intrepid in 1804, was the one that sailed the ship into Tripoli Harbor, and all 12 were blown up to save the uh, uh, American slaves. Mike in Staten Island. Hey, today's lunch special in honor of Curtis is liverwurst sandwiches and Canada Dry ginger ale at Dino and Son Woodside. Keith in Manhattan. Loved your thing about the lady just now, but uh, this is not a promotion, but can you tell me the closest place to play craps? I'm in Manhattan. Uh, Would be in uh, Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, Anthony in Edison. Yes, good morning. Uh, It's time for the Biden administration to admit that they're lying to the American people about every single thing, but they're not going to do that because they're nothing but liars. William in Westchester. Hi, regarding your Posner conversation and how to avoid uh, a war in Eastern Europe, if there were an Eastern European version of NATO built up on the Visegrad Pact of 1991, there would be no need for NATO in the East, and they would have... Richie in East Meadow. Hey, Frank, congratulations. Good to hear you again. Uh, All the best to you and your family. Let's go, Carmine. And uh, I guess we'll end it there. Uh, Uncle Willie, Barry, Henry, Raji, uh, call back tomorrow. We will get to you first. 
Thank you for listening. You want to stay in touch, uh, find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Find me on Twitter at Frank Morano, or you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. My guest tomorrow, Judge Andrew Politano. Frank Diaz is next. To be continued.